Greetings, everyone, and welcome to the Stacks. This is Jay. And I'm the Shanna with no name, but my name is Monko. <laughs> yeah, uh, w- one of the things we, we should get into pretty quickly, but we'll, we'll leave it <laughs> for when we get into uh, film proper discussion. But uh, Man with No Name, I, I, I do not agree with the Man with No Name trilogy. I think of it as the Dollars trilogy. That makes so much more sense because he has a name in this one. He has a name in every single one of these. It's a nickname in The Good, The Bad, The Ugly, but he does have one. Arguably, it's a nickname in all three, but mm, we'll, we'll talk about that probably. in a sec. Uh, but yeah, uh, he kind of has names. Uh, so Man With No Name Trilogy uh, is sort of one of its more popular derivations. It just doesn't seem accurate to me. Dollars is a real consistent theme. He's always trying. He's always trying to get the gold or the money or sometimes both. Maybe. Although that's what. Although that's what every Western hero is trying to do with these things, it seems like. Well, you got to consider how incredibly influential these two movies are. Like Sartana, the the two Sartana movies that we watched are 100 percent just based on these movies. Like every single element taken, especially in that second one, is just Mm -hmm. copied from this movie. (laughs) Totally. it's, It's blatant. Yeah, I mean, the the pocket watch stuff. Klaus Kinski as a character, <laughs> uh, very very heavily based. But in, we have not mentioned, uh, although maybe kind of obvious, we are talking about for a few dollars more, uh, 1965 film by, of course, director Sergio Leone. I would say he uh, he gets more than a few dollars more than last time, because last time he got a fistful. This time he got a lot. <laughs> yeah. yeah, he he makes off like a bandit. Although he did drive out with a wagon load of cash in the first one too it's just this one he's got to convert it to cash at the end but he he's he's getting a few dollars more in this one <laughs> oh when you say it like that <laughs> and of course clint eastwood was also getting a few dollars more with this one <laughs> i bet but someone who was not, or I, I guess someone who did ultimately have to get a few dollars more was uh, Sergio Leone himself. Uh, and this this sort of ties into the thing with Clint Eastwood being the man with no name, but and why he had to be distinct from the character in the first one is he was, uh, his his salary was held hostage. <laughs> Leone's salary was? Yeah, the the producers of the first one, they're like, well, we're not going to give you your pay because we want you to make a sequel first. Oh. And this movie was like a huge hit internationally, right. instantly. So he was like, fuck you guys. <laughs> Get new producers. You keep my pay. I'm taking my business elsewhere. Oh, so so uh, so he's Monko now so that he doesn't have to so that he can get out of legal trouble with the money man. Kind of like it's a a situation where he couldn't be exactly the same character. So there are various things about him that are distinct differences. I think just to make sure. Right. Although a lot of elements are the same. It it's in the same kind of vein. I it, it still feels like a sequel, even if he doesn't quite feel like the same guy. It's weird. It kind of feels more like a prequel. A prequel to Fistful, you mean? Yeah. 
it it doesn't or i i guess hmm I think in the fan timeline that people have described, this is the last one. This one happens much, much later. Okay. Well, and I think it has to be because this is the only one where there's like telegraph lines and stuff. Right, right. Whereas uh, uh, Good, the Bad and the Ugly is set very firmly in the Civil War. Takes place within it. And I think Fistful is prior to Civil War. Okay. So I, I think that's supposed to be the fan order. And this one's much later. This one's clearly just, you know, it, it's the dying of the West. Mm-hmm. Uh, once again, we have an Ennio Morricone score. Another uh, great one. I really, I really like this one. Um, not as much as, of course, the good, the bad, the ugly, but. Right. I agree. Still really good. Definitely more experimental than the one for Fistful. A lot of non-musical instrumentation in this one mm, yeah uh also a lot of like gunshots gun, gun, yeah gunshots i was thinking that there wasn't really anything equivalent in fistful to the music box that gets used true and that's like so heavily copied in some of the other ones we've seen mm-hmm. like sartana borrows the hell out of that <laughs> sartana basically stole it whole cloth yeah. Even having the music box be represented by a pocket watch. Completely. Uh, but but the, the music in this one, uh, Morricone, like a lot of the rhythms are just like horse hoofs or whip cracks or gunshots. Really works, though. Oh, it's great. It's I, it's so good. I, I think in the commentary track by Tim Lucas, which is really great, he mentions that there is a total of 17 minutes of music. That's but man, it? they use it. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah. Uh, so uh, opening shot, just this long shot of a rider in the far distance and someone whistling and preparing a gun off camera. And of course, I assume this is going to be the man without with no name riding into town. But no, sniped it's off not. the horse. <laughs> <laughs> yep. This is just some random guy. Who knows who it is? Maybe yeah. uh, he's being shot by our man with no name or maybe Could by be. Lee Van Cleef or one of the. Yeah. Or one of the gang. Could be. But this is a, cool titles where uh, just on this huge plane, they're like blown in by the wind. Animated mm-hmm. titles. Yeah. And then they just blow away like dust. In the yeah. Wind. Yeah. And well, they're shot away. Because, like, each time one of the titles comes up, there's, like, sound effects of shots, and then the the titles break, and then they're blown away. Oh, right, and it has, like, the two zeros, uh, or, like, right. the two O's remaining. Yeah. Uh, and the, and the, the same one, uh, Sergio Leone's name disappears at the end. It's got two the two O's in his name left last, which is cool. <laughs> yeah. Which uh, I thought of immediately when uh, later on we find out that one of the bounty targets wrote in two zeros at the end of his thing because he thought the reward amount was insulting. Oh, yeah. It's it's a motif that appears a lot because it's the snake eyes, too, for dice. Oh, oh yeah, totally. Yeah. Uh, so this one is not based on a Kurosawa this time. Uh, I, I had misremembered. It is really just the first one. But it does kind of have a peculiar anime feel to it, does it not? It, oh, totally. The whole time I was thinking this, I was like, this feels like a samurai movie. They're going to take out their swords and they're going to do, oh, they took out their guns, right? But otherwise, yeah. it feels like a samurai movie. 
and the faces like uh, the the casting of extras in this who they they just have really incredible faces and just big performances really big that feel like anime side characters i love the train guy oh that guy's great uh, prophet Mm -hmm. (laughs) uh yeah there's there's so many too and because they're so distinctive you think they're all gonna stick around most don't some do but most don't but they're they're so distinctive that just the brief period of time they're allowed to shine is so distinct. Like the innkeeper's wife, just an incredible face. Oh yeah, totally. Oh man, got a. <laughs> She's done herself up so nice and is like super crushing hard on Clint. Yeah, but she doesn't have much to do. But she's just so distinct. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, the the there there's an opening crawl sort of. Uh, and it says where life had no value, death sometimes had its price. That is why the bounty killers appeared. So it's a bounty killer movie. Uh, but it just makes them seem like so like ghostly, ethereal, like not human kind of the, yeah. the way they say it. Yeah, it it, it gives them sort of a, a obviously both an extra legal power. And, you know, they these are just guys who are paid to kill people who, for whatever reason, have money out for them. And they don't necessarily know. It doesn't matter. It's like, this guy's worth the grand, sure, whatever, I'll kill him. Yeah. Here, I, I'd like my $1,000 now. Yeah. Uh, so, it, you know, it, it introduces them without even having seen them as being pretty cold-blooded, even though they are our heroes. So, uh, Lee Van Cleef is our first major character that we're introduced to. And I would say, arguably, he's the main character of the movie. I would say, going back to the samurai motif, I would say that uh, he is the guy who is helped by Zatoichi, but it's his story. Right, yeah, I'd say that's pretty accurate. Yeah, he's, so, I was shocked. Sorry, go ahead. No, please. I, I was actually shocked because... I thought he was going to be our main villain again, like he was in The Good, right. The Bad, The Ugly. And he's dressed almost exactly the same. It's like the classic Lee Van Cleef look. Uh, th- this movie uh, made him. Like, th- th- like he was not in Fistful. You know he was not. But uh, we- we've seen him in other movies, and just every movie after this that he was in, they're like, well... I mean, it's not the same guy, but you gotta kind of do that guy again. We'll, we'll, do, we'll dress you the same way. We'll dress you the same way. <laughs> this time, though, you're gonna be. Last time you were a hero. This time you're gonna be Mr. Murder. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which he pulls off both the hero with this one and the murder in the next. Yeah, and he's kind of interestingly straddling the line in this one. Mm-hmm. So he's introduced on the train. And he's hiding behind a huge ornate black and gold Bible that just says the Bible on it. Not the Holy Bible or anything. Nope, just the Bible. And he kind of looks like a preacher, but he's not. Or is he? Is he? Actually, he's... we don't find out. He yeah. could have been in his backstory. Maybe. Maybe. Because we know that he was originally a military man because he's got... Uh, he's got a title. He is Colonel Douglas Mortimer. Mm-hmm. But uh, we know he hasn't been doing that for a while. 
no, we don't. Oh, yeah. So, of course, this would have to be probably after the Civil War, because that's likely where he would have got the. Yeah. Yeah. Where he would have got the title and he wouldn't be he wouldn't be retiring when the Civil War was on the horizon or when it's happening. Right. Exactly. So it's it's definitely happening. Well, it's clearly happening later just because of the infrastructure that's post Civil War. Right. I got to I got to I never found out. I got to figure it out because I. I never figured out how telegraphs actually work, and it's something that comes up all the time in these in this time period. Pretty significant. A, a lot of uh, telegraph shenanigans, especially just surrounding Clint Eastwood specifically. <laughs> so the, there's this dude who's across from him who's got, you know, a, another just a very distinctive face. He looks like he could be in uh, Bram Stoker's Dracula, the 90s one. Oh, he totally looks like he could be like... A, a Dr. Van Helsing or something like that. He's got similar glasses that uh, I, I think Dracula has when he's in his human form as like, you know, cool Gary Oldman. <laughs> I never saw that movie. Oh, really? It's pretty good. Uh, it's it's weird. Like it's 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 called Bram Stoker's Dracula, but it's not as faithful to Dracula as like the 1931 movie that isn't even based on the Bram Stoker novel, but a play based on the Bram Stoker novel because they couldn't get the rights to the novel. Oh, so it's thing. one of those things. <laughs> they, they did that a lot in the 90s, if I recall. Well, they did it a lot in the 30s. Like all of those Universal Monster movies are based on stage plays. <laughs> oh, I didn't know that. Uh, I, I guess it was sort of a way to get around the censors because, you know, it's a literary work. Uh, <laughs> oh. Like uh, all of the, the more just basic monster ones, you know, you couldn't just do a monster movie or people would be like, you can't do that. That's too too evil. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Oh, standards have changed. Indeed. So uh, the the dude across from Mortimer He's telling him, well, I'm afraid the train doesn't stop at Tucumcari. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it'll stop for me. Yeah, it's like, it'll stop at Tucumcari. And he pulls the e-brake. <laughs> yeah, I love how, like, everybody just goes flying when he does this. Yeah. It, or not you know, flying, you, but. You're not supposed to do it. Yeah. Uh, and I, he, it comes to a stop just perfectly so he can ride his horse down the the the, <laughs> uh, the, the embankment next to the, the train. Oh, yeah. When the conductor confronts him, it's like, well, if you need to get off, just let us know. But I'm already off. <laughs> I did get off. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The, the guy, he's initially about to confront him. He's like, hey, you're not supposed to do that. And he just like looks at him. He's like. Uh, you know, we could help you. I mean, no, no, no right. problem, obviously. Right, right. He looks at, he's like about to, he's about to tear a piece off him. Then he sees the guy, sees his fancy clothes and sees that he's also Lee Van Cleef. And is like, maybe I won't mess with it. Let's turn on the diplomatic customer service mode. Yeah, I mean, even here as Colonel Douglas Mortimer, good guy, he is still the man with the gun side eyes. He's terrifying looking. <laughs> he's still he's well, the pro promotional material calls him the man in black. The man in black. Yeah. Uh, which he kind of is in The Good, the Bad and the Ugly, where he is extremely villainous. Like he is as bad as Indio in the next one. Oh, he is evil incarnate in that one. 
Yeah. So he passes the wanted poster for Guy Calloway. And he's the guy who had the added zeros on his poster. So I didn't see the actual zeros on the poster. So I, I'm wondering, was it like originally $10 and he made it 1000 No, it's 1000 but he wrote two zeros next to it that are really off-center and pretty obviously just like badly okay. drawn on. <laughs> so he's not really worth $100,000. No, I, he he's just worth a thousand dollars, and the the clerk's like, "Yep, wrote it on there himself." <laughs> uh, he thought it was a real laugh, and uh, you know, obviously, no one's gonna come do it. This is another guy who really felt anime to me. He totally did. He was he was like, "Nobody's gonna ever come claim this bounty, at least not yet." Yeah, when uh, obviously Lee Van Cleef pulls it off the wall and starts folding it up, he's like, "Well." I didn't think anyone ever would. He, he, <laughs> he, he feels like someone they'd interact with in Cowboy Bebop. Oh, totally. Oh, man. I got to watch that again. I love Cowboy Bebop. Great show. So uh, he enters the saloon, and obviously the music stops instantly. Oh, yeah. They, they hadn't the classic. Invented, yeah, they hadn't invented records yet, but if they did, there'd be a record scratch. Yeah, so you just have the pianist go... Vroom. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and he, he talks to the bartender because he's looking for Guy Calloway and he knows he's been through here. He defaced his own wanted poster. <laughs> <laughs> Not the best way to stay uh, undercover. <laughs> no, no, I wasn't through here. Somebody else defaced my wanted poster. Hmm. So he talks to the bartender, and the bartender's like, I, I, I can't say anything. <laughs> <laughs> he very obviously looks up, and he's like, I don't know where he'd be right now. Yeah, it's like, I don't know. And you just, like, follow his eyes, very significantly <laughs> looking towards the room. It's like, okay, okay. So Guy is, of course, upstairs with the woman. Uh, and... Uh, Mortimer alerts him by sliding the poster under the door. <laughs> <laughs> so, Great. so good. <laughs> you know, obviously he immediately starts firing and then he takes off out the window. He's not as fearsome as perhaps he suggested he was. He's immediately on the run. Oh, totally. I mean, he's only worth a thousand dollars. The thugs in the Indio's gang are worth more than that individually. Yeah, I mean, those guys are a real dangerous criminal gang. He's just one lone outlaw. Mm -hmm. He may have just been a horse thief. You know, they, they hung horse thieves. I don't know. <laughs> well, that's true. That's true. Well, dude, you, you, need, you need a horse in the Old West. Yeah, it's the, the famous quote. <laughs> there, there's no horses that needed stealing, but there are some men that needed killing. <laughs> so... Uh, he, you know, he draws fire, he takes off out the window and there's like the lady in the bathtub when <laughs> Mortimer goes in through He's like, He's howdy, ma'am. Ma <laughs> yeah. Pure gentleman. Mm -hmm. So uh, Mortimer shoots the horse out from under the guy because he's he's taken off on a horse with his long range gun, which is what sets him apart. Yeah, he uh, we're, we're actually going to see a demonstration. Probably, I think it's quite a bit later, but. He's he's got more range than uh, Eastwood's character does. We we see it immediately, basically, because uh, he he demonstrates it here with he waits for the guy to get just far enough away, and he you know he uses the shotgun and takes out the horse, 
And then, you know, he lets the guy shoot at him. Because he's like, well, <laughs> these fucking revolvers are not good enough at this point in time for you to be able to get me from that range. <laughs> oh, that's... I didn't get that that's what he was doing. I didn't realize he was outranging him here. I thought yeah. the guy was just, like, a really bad shot. <laughs> I mean, it does seem like that's also viable. He just does not seem like he's one of the more dangerous villains we're going to come across. No. He's weird looking. Like, he's got... He looks nothing like the wanted poster, which was intentional. They they just oh, really? made it look like a totally different guy just for fun. <laughs> That's hilarious. He, yeah, I was gonna say like the wanted poster is like, isn't it some like fat dude? Yeah, it looks nothing like him. This guy looks like he's from Deliverance. <laughs> like really crazy teeth. Um, so he gets shot, and but but he rises up, and they have you know our first big face off of the movie. A big moment in uh, a Leone. Wow, wow, wow. Well, not in this one. Not in this one. But yeah, he's just firing away, but <laughs> Revolver is just not accurate <laughs> enough for him to hit him. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and Mortimer's just nonchalantly assembling this special armitage that he has uh, that uh, gives him a long range device to like stabilize his his revolver with his arm and he just yeah. shoots the dude in the head as soon as he gets into range yeah it's like um there's a word for it i don't know what it is but it's like a brace so that he's able to like brace the uh their gun up against his shoulder right and eastwood has kind of a, a thing like he has a special armband for his shooting arm oh yeah i i was wondering about that it's uh, the only cause... thing he uses that arm for did you notice that I didn't. He literally only uses the arm for shooting and just lets it hang dead all the rest of the movie. It's kind of cool. I didn't, I, I did Watch notice, again. Like, oh, man. <laughs> yeah, there was one point where I noticed he was doing something with his left hand, and I was like, wait, isn't he right-handed? Because, <laughs> you know, he shoots with his right. Oh, yeah. man. Okay. That's his other nickname in the movie is Lefty. Huh. There's a couple different names he's given. Oh. Uh, so, you know, he, uh, our Mortimer collects the bounty, and this is where we're introduced to our second guy, because he's leaving, and he sees this $2,000 wanted poster, and he's like, hey, devil your money. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yep, yeah, and the guy's like, well, just so you know, another guy came in here asking about him. His name was Monko, <laughs> and it immediately <laughs> cuts around, and like, whoa, wait. His name is Monk. Oh, and we're going to go immediately to Clint Eastwood. Man with no name, my ass. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's not as, uh, it's, it's more intimidating than uh, hearing that Monko is coming. Yeah. Uh, that, that is kind of an intimidating name. He does sound like Mungo from Blazing Saddles. Like he's going to be just this giant, huge guy. Oh, yeah, I guess. <laughs> uh, although Monko, of course, means monk. And is sort of a reference to his solitary existence. So it's maybe another nickname. Oh, I, did, I didn't realize that about the monk, but that makes sense. It also kind of ties this into ties into how this feels like a samurai movie. Very samurai movie-esque, yeah. And, and of course, they're, they're both looking for the same guy, Baby Kavanaugh. Uh, and monko seems to be a few steps ahead because he's already there in white rocks uh, i really love the shot of him riding into town 
Uh, he he's it's like shot high up from behind, and he's just walking next to the horse in the rain. And it just uh, looked yeah. like totally empty town. Yeah, I I love all these I love these western towns and like all the riding into town shots and all that that they always do. Yeah, like, just, I, please. There, there's just so many different ways you can do it. it right. Even though it's all just one horse going down a street, usually there's so many ways you can shoot it. Well, and I think Sergio Leone really pioneered it, too. I mean, obviously, he took a lot from Bedeker, uh, Bud Bedeker, who's a, sort of an early stylist of it in the 50s. But, like, he's, um, like, th- these are so distinctive. that They're so heavily copied. And I one of the towns in this still exists. Oh. Like, like the town that they built to film El Paso. Oh, no uh, kidding. It's it's a tourist attraction today. <laughs> Nice, nice. Uh, so, uh, th- this is where you realize that he's only using the right hand for shooting and nothing else. He he's just using his left hand. So, like he he's using the left hand to guide the horse, and then when he gets into the fight in the saloon, uh, he only hits the guy with his left hand. He just doesn't even touch him with the right hand. He never lifts it. Interesting. Yeah, that's 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 a neat detail because nobody ever talks about it or brings it up. You just have to, you just got to notice it. Yeah, and he has that leather hand strap on the right wrist that uh, you know is to stabilize his wrist, I guess. I thought that was because like this character, this Monko guy, not the legendary man with no name, but this Monko guy, like had carpal tunnel or something. <laughs> Old West carpal tunnel syndrome. Yeah, or like yeah. some kind of injury and. He needed that just to be able to still shoot with his shooting hand. But now it kind of seems like something else might be going on. Yeah. Well, it's it's hard to say. Is it an affectation or is it just like this is part of his legend? He only uses his right hand for shooting and nothing else. Like that's real big iconography stuff that does not translate to reality but makes sense. Again, in an anime. <laughs> oh, totally. He only uses his his left arm or his right arm for shooting. If he uses it for anything else, he's it'll make him 0.3% less efficient because he'll have to overwrite some of the shooting muscle memory or, or something. Yeah, I mean, like all of these people fit in Zatoichi more than they fit in your traditional Western. I mean, well, we, we have a ninja raid coming up. Yeah. <laughs> so, of course, also he has the characteristic poncho and hat. Same stuff he wore in Fistful. Very similar style. Mm-hmm. And and his cigars. Right. The same stogies. So he comes into the saloon and he just kind of silently joins the poker game that uh, Baby Kavanaugh is involved in. <laughs> he just grabs the deck and starts dealing. Yeah. He doesn't really announce himself. It's just like... <laughs> playing away and he wins without ever saying anything it's it's like an extended sequence mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and during all of it happening we see gunmen hurriedly gathering from all over town there's one guy who's getting his beard shaved at the barber shop <laughs> he just like tosses off yeah he, he he tosses the barber rag onto the barber's head and he shows up with half a beard such a great look when he turns up in a minute yeah So, yeah, uh, during all of this, they're gathering and then he wins the hand and the guy's like, uh, 
So what was the bet? <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's a good question. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Monko's great first line, again, very well chosen, uh, him taking a long time and being silent before we see him speak. Uh, your life. <laughs> <laughs> Hell yeah. Yep. So he, he gets in a fight with this guy and he, he is just punching him with the one hand or he grabs him with the one hand and he never even raises the other one. So he's fighting really awkwardly interesting yeah okay man i cannot believe i didn't sketch it that (laughs) so like he he gets him up to the bar which is right in front of the doors and the three gunmen show up in the doorway (laughs) i love and he's still got the shaving cream on yeah the half of the beard such (laughs) this such a good look for this guy who's going to be dead in 10 seconds well, it's the thing of all of these characters having these really amazing expressive faces and just being cast for those moments. So they're so iconic, even though you only glimpse them. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, he shoots all three of them instantly. He he, he finally <laughs> uses his right hand. Yep. And uh, baby Kavanaugh's crawling for a gun and uh, Monko just shoots him without even turning. Oh, yeah. He, he, like, just points the gun kind of behind him and shoots him. Yeah, rip. Uh, and then we have his twinned scene of the collecting of the bounty, you know, because we, we saw Mortimer collecting a bounty. And now we, we see him in comparison. It's a little more contentious. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you see why the other guy is like, oh, yeah, I remember him and this is his name. <laughs> well, you go get the money next time. Because, uh, yeah, he fires the sheriff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he, he takes the sheriff star off of the sheriff and just throws it to the ground. I think you guys need another sheriff. <laughs> yeah, it's like, uh, sh- sheriffs, uh, as I understand it, are supposed to be courageous. <laughs> <laughs> just takes the star and like, you're fired. <laughs> we're, we're getting out of here. Which he uh, later does in, oh, what was that one movie with him, but he's not the man with no name that we saw? High Plains Drifter. Uh, that's the one. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That, yeah. He pretty uh, much does that there, too. Yeah. Yeah. Although there it's because it's part of his fee for saving the town. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Saving, yeah. quote unquote. Quote unquote. So good introduction. I, I think it's solidly iconic. Uh, he doesn't have to kill a whole lot of dudes, but it's, you know, similar to the first one where he just takes out four people instantly. Yep. Yep. Um, but at kind of a medium range. We haven't seen him right. shoot super far yet. Look, he, he doesn't have that range. He's just a close fighting kind of guy. Mm-hmm. Now we're introduced to our third main character, I would say. Our El Indio and his gang with the jailbreak. I love El Indio because he's like obviously super evil and extremely competent, but he also always looks like he wants to go to bed. He is just uh, he he seems like a broken man. He's totally psychotic, obviously, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. he's just been broken by the things he's done, it seems like. Yeah, yeah, like we we see later on a flashback of his tragic backstory and it, it's tragic because he did the murder. <laughs> yeah, he's the one who did it. <laughs> it's like, I'll never be with my love again. It's like, well, you might if you didn't kill. Well, 
wouldn't, but that's not the point. Yeah. So uh, quite a jailbreak sequence. Uh, his gang come in and uh, they, they he he talks to the cellmate briefly and then just fucking kills him because he has no loyalties. Obviously, <laughs> it's going to be a theme. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It uh, kind of bites him in the butt. Yeah, kind of. It takes really long time to. Yeah, because he's he's also really smart and careful. I guess I, it's weird because he's not. It's not really that he's that smart. It's that everyone else is much stupider. <laughs> mm. The the gang is not clever. I mean, they're, they're they're all types again. You know, they're they're just underlings. They don't have a whole lot of character to them. They just have faces. True, true. I mean, you got your big guy. You, you got the brains. You've got your Klaus Kinski. Mm-hmm. Who is, man, he's distinct in this one. We'll, <laughs> we'll get to him shortly. He's a hunchback. It's, it's unreal. But um, this but, jailbreak scene. Oh, it's, uh, it's crazy. It, it totally, like, it totally reminded me of ninjas. Yeah. Like, the they're, way they're, they're going like, in the roof. Yeah. Like, I thought they were, like, and every time you think they're going to throw a throwing star, they just shoot. Yeah. Well, they massacre the entire uh guard staff oh, yeah. everyone all, all down to one guy yeah yeah one guy and only because he's got to tell tell them what you saw here it's the mickey and mallory knox thing <laughs> natural born yep. killers i mean honestly this is definitely what tarantino took it from oh for <laughs> sure for sure thousand percent but yeah they, like they're, they're essentially killing all like they've broken him out and then they go through and kill all the guards so that he can kill the warden because he, he has a beef with the warden. Of course he does. Well, I mean, necessarily. I mean, yes, most prison people, most prisoners do have beef with the warden. That's kind of yeah. how it kind of comes with the territory. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it's an oppositional place to be. Uh, I, I, I love the cut when he, you know, tells the guy that, you know, we'll leave you alive to tell the tale. And he laughs uproariously and it cuts to his $10,000 wanted poster of him laughing uproariously <laughs> like that. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, it, it's like the cut uh, him laughing kind of like freeze frames and goes into black and white and transitions. It's so good. It's so good. It's one that actually does look like him versus that previous guy. <laughs> I, I imagine like he, when he got the photo taken, it's like, make sure you catch me doing my evilest laugh. ha 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 ha. He probably sent it in. He's like, this is my favorite headshot. <laughs> <laughs> if I'm ever wanted for all the shit I'm about to do, make sure you use this one. Yeah. I absolutely love as well the montage of uh, Lee Van Cleef and Clint Eastwood both seeing it. Because <laughs> it's like th they both seem to see the exact same poster in the same place, but they're both seeing it at the same time in the movie. So it's just this crazy montage of their eyes and the poster and them reacting and just intense music swelling and tons of bullet sounds <laughs> like every time it flashes to a different eye pew, pew, pew. yeah yeah it's amazing <laughs> it, it's like the uh it's like the kill bill uh when uma thurman sees her next target thing yeah exactly With... and again probably <laughs> probably directly influenced by this yeah <sighs> So Indio goes to Tommaso, who is the guy who betrayed him. Very intense. He uh, annihilates the whole family. 
Including yeah. a baby. Oh, yeah. And he's like, well, so you were able to start your life with the reward money from you got from locking me up. So in a way, this life of yours is part mine. Yeah, I'm, I'm just going to take my part now. Yeah. Uh, That's I, scary. Yeah, it's it's very intense. He has them take out the wife and uh, I think it's an 18 month old baby uh, yeah. and just execute them outside while he listens and while playing our, our very first time through the pocket watch music pocket watch music was was that really a thing it i mean have I, been. I, think, it? I, I think so i mean pocket watches were very expensive and were a, a real novelty item uh you know it, it's why it's a pocket watch you put it on a chain it goes in an expensive pouch in your like high class clothing oh yeah your expensive <laughs> vest of course yeah it, it's all the bankers who have those and the well i guess also the train conductors right because they the needed people. it yeah yeah mostly wealthy people you, you kind of needed it if you were wealthy but most other people didn't really need to know exactly what time it was they could just kind of tell where the time was by you know the the state of the sun there, there's sundials around there are church bells ringing on certain hours we will be directly beneath beneath the earth's sun now yeah so uh uh, they they have this duel with the pocket watch music because first he he winds him up he gives him nothing to lose yeah you know, he he makes him so angry that you know he will be facing him at the same fatalistic state he's in like it does seem like India wants to die yeah yeah I mean it it does because he. He kind of intentionally targets the the most well-defended bank that there is, um, which is actually how Lee Van Cleef is able to get a lead on him. Yeah, he knows. He knows yeah. he wants to die, and he's like, I am willing to take care of that for you. <laughs> Although it's interesting because it's implied that he targets it because it's the most defended bank, but he's actually targeting that bank because he knows a secret about it. Right. I feel like he'd be targeting it either way. It's just, this is a real good in. It's a good way to get all of the troops behind him. Mm -hmm. I really love the score as uh, the pocket watch thing plays out. Like, he his, his thing is, I'm going to open up the pocket watch and it'll play all of the music again. When it stops playing is when we'll draw. Yeah, that's a, that's a nice good way to... Uh... Uh, to set the time and also well, good, to, you know, atmosphere. Yeah, it creates tension. Uh, and it's because it's a really long theme that it plays. And of course, the score gets to double it and intensify it and make it this huge orchestral thing. Oh, my God. It's so huge. It's like music you'd expect if you're fighting against the devil. Yeah, because he kind of is diabolical, very evil. Uh, so, you know, it, it finishes and he shoots the guy. No problem. He was no match for the great El Indio. No, nobody. Well, <laughs> almost nobody is. Yeah, you, you need someone who's really personally invested. Although this guy's super personally invested too, but I don't know. Yeah, uh, you, you need someone really personally invested. And maybe who's already been established as a badass bounty killer. Yeah, someone who's been doing it for a real long time because of him. 
Yeah, maybe. Oh, yeah, definitely someone like that. <laughs> yeah. So uh, very interesting that Indio always smokes weed to cool down after he kills someone. Yeah, and he gets real like it's it's a it's a psychological dependency because he gets oh. real upset when the big guy doesn't give it to him instantly. instantly. Yeah, the, like, the guy's got to be ready with a joint at any time. It's like it's like man, you better have that shit pre-rolled. Mm-hmm. And don't be fumbling in your pocket for it either. That is not fast enough. He needs it. Yep. So Mortimer visits a bank, just some random bank. I'm not really sure if it's clear where it is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I love this scene because he's asking, like, if I were to rob a bank, the most well-defended one there is, would it be the hardest bank to rob? And the banker yeah, is like, what if I had just a gang of ruthless killers and I wanted to rob the most dangerous bank in the whole country and the guy's like uh, well the thing about that is and he's carefully closes the safe behind him i laughed so hard at that i was like oh shit i'm gonna wake up the neighbors <laughs> it's uh but he's he says the bank of el paso is definitely where you would want to go but it would be crazy to do that you'd have to be a madman well, turns out it's exactly who it's looking for. Our friend is a madman. And in a great, you know, a, another thing of their sort of paralleling and overlapping, he learns about El Paso and then we see Monko coming into El Paso rather than him. Mm-hmm. Uh, where he meets Fernando, his child sidekick. <laughs> oh, man. I, I like to think that everybody who, every stranger who comes into El Paso is assigned a child sidekick. It like, does kind of seem like an industry. Oh, yeah. Like like the child sidekick union assigns uh, each, each stranger as child sidekick. Because, like, he clearly knows how to milk money out of a stranger. <laughs> He's so good at it. Because he tells him, like, uh, he asks him if there are any strangers in town. He's like, yep, there's one uh, in town right now. It's like, okay. And he just, like, starts playing with the coin. Okay, and he gives him another one. Yeah, he's right over there. You can see him. He just stepped out. <laughs> it's Lee Van Cleef. <laughs> yeah. It's our Mortimer. Just it's like... directly across the street. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And Eastwood's like, where is he staying? And uh, it gives him another coin. It's like that hotel he just walked out of. Yeah, the hotel. The the one that I told you not to stay in because it's really shitty. You stay in this one here directly across the street. It's much better. You go in this one. He goes in that one. And that's how this child psychic union keeps the peace in town. Yeah. Or tries to. So uh, his hotel, uh, Monko's hotel, the desk clerk the tiny tiny <laughs> desk clerk oh yeah that's right he was on a stool <laughs> he's wee oh, he's, he's a little man and, and he he has this huge lusty wife who has just an amazing face oh man and she she's she so into monko instantly <laughs> and like she... even before he goes in there fernando's like Oh, the innkeeper's wife will be completely into you. <laughs> <laughs> totally. <laughs> Don't worry about the innkeeper. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so he comes in and he looks at the register 
And it's like, well, there's no room. I'm like, well, the thing is, I want the room directly above the the doorway that looks out onto the street. And it's like, well, that's, you know, the most popular room in the house. It's obviously full. Oh, yeah. Oh, who's staying in that one? <laughs> <laughs> I love I love this bit. It, it's much like, again, High Plains Drifter. He just evicts the guy. He's like, well, I, I'm afraid I need it. <laughs> <laughs> rooms yeah, for I, me now i love that we don't see or hear what he does the guy just comes down he's like okay well i'm checking out now oh, i need to go yeah it stays with the desk clerk and the wife being like huh something's weird here i don't know about this <laughs> well would you like to maybe uh rent another room instead no no i'd like to leave town i'm leaving town now just gonna immediately get out of here and he he comes back uh monko comes down the stairs with his underwear like i don't wear them (laughs) (laughs) you can keep these because i do not wear underwear sir (laughs) and the innkeeper's wife is like he's so tall virile yeah she's (laughs) so into him immediately well i love that she that she mentioned notices and points out that he's tall and the the poor innkeeper's like he's so tiny yeah, uh, she is into him much like a different desk clerk is into someone in our second film. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I like to imagine that the guy who got evicted uh, just got done playing piano blindfolded at a ridiculous party. I, I would hope so. So Indio's second in command shows up at their hideout, uh, groggy who doesn't get a lot to do for quite a while, but becomes pretty important at the end. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, he has so little to do that I thought the big guy was the second in command. Yeah, I guess first. he's sort of, he's he's the second in command when Groggy's not there, I guess. Because there's also this other second in command who Indio's waiting for, and Groggy's like, yeah, he's not showing up. That dude's in jail for four years. Yeah, I I think he plays off second in commands against each other. Oh, clearly. He, he's all into just, like, having his men kill each other or having other people kill them for him. Well, yeah, I mean, less, uh, you gotta divide the take fewer ways if there's fewer people. You get to keep more for yourself. Exactly. This it's it's the Joker thing. plot. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so this is him giving the plot. This is him proposing the heist with the secret safe. I, I love that he's on like like a preacher's um, uh, podium doing it. The pulpit, yeah. Yeah, the pulpit. That's what it's called. Yeah, like like he's conducting a sermon. Mm-hmm. He he does a really theatrical thing. Like he goes up around a staircase. He's telling it as a story. He begins with like once upon a time <laughs> there was a carpenter and i'm like oh, yeah. he's gonna tell a story about jesus isn't he <laughs> is this about jesus homer no <laughs> well, maybe uh yeah and it, it turns out that he was the guy who he killed earlier his cellmate mm-hmm. told him about this hidden bank yeah where they have like the super biggest highest tech safe that that exists in this time period but the money's not in that safe. Right. Well, it, the, the, no, the money is in the safe, but the safe is also hidden inside a bar. And oh, their, okay. their great big bank vault is just a, a, 
is just a just for show right whereas right. The, the real serious bank because like the, the this safe is also like super secure mm-hmm. it's just it's also hidden uh in a wooden paneled cabinet and disguised as a bar so you know it's a pretty pretty safe bank the uh they've got like the ultimate security and uh deception going on right it's not unlike the one we see in the second sartana movie with all the bars Oh, yeah, but those guys have an army. This bank only seems to have four guys. Yeah, this guy does. This bank does not have as many people as it seems like it should, ultimately. Although, you know, they do have a fairly elaborate uh, system. It's just, you know, once people know the secrets of it, it's it's pretty easy to break. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. It's it's more about the uh, appearance of security. Right. Which is not also not unlike Sartana, too, where, you know, the bank has all those huge signs where it, the, the basic <laughs> thing is it's a threat. You you use this bank or you will get all your money stolen. <laughs> the guy with the minigun across the road. That rules. <laughs> and again, uh, I, I like the economy of uh, storytelling where, you know, Indio tells the story of the safe and it pulls out from our image of the save to reveal that Mortimer is right there in the El Paso bank already. Oh, yes. Yeah. Already gathering information. Yeah. And then it he goes outside and four of Indio's guys show up riding into El Paso, including Klaus Kinski. Better watch out. You better <laughs> not cry. Thankfully, they didn't do that. Yeah. None of that. Uh, he's so good in this he does have his own little theme music it's just kind of like a little trill that they give (laughs) i i I love the little the twitch he does when it's like (laughs) he's so furious yeah yeah uh they just classic klaus kinski being a a raging lunatic (laughs) so they ride into town and fernando whistles for monko who's upstairs in his room and he tries to milk him for a bunch of coins like, yeah, there, there was this guy. Oh, yeah. And there's another thing. All right. He gives him another coin. He's like, there was another guy that I didn't tell you about. And there's more. <laughs> He's like, okay, kid, I, you got to give me all of the information in one go, and I will give you the money you want, but I, I don't have time for this bullshit. Hey, child psychic union rules, man. We do it this <laughs> way or we don't do it. But, you know... He does uh, tell him off. He he finds out very quickly that they're over on the other. Uh, they're they're in the saloon, which is the hotel that Mortimer's staying at. Yeah, of course Mortimer's there too. Of course he is. Uh, and the two of them converge on the four staying at the bar, and ooh, Mortimer really tempts fate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Please. Uh, he he lights his match on Klaus Kinski's uh, hump because he's a hunchback. Yeah, he's got a shoulder strap going over uh, the hump, so he lights his match on that. And ooh, he turns and just like all of Rage. the other guys around him. Yeah, like just lip twitching, eyes twitching. Yeah, the big guy's like got to put his hand on Kinski's hand so he doesn't go immediately for his gun. And then, because, like, he turns around and he blows out the match furiously. So yeah. 
Mortimer pushes it further. He takes the cigar out of Kinski's mouth and puts it in his pipe to light it. (laughs) While staring into his twitching, furious face. I would do that with Klaus Kinski, the actor. That guy's scary. (laughs) I've heard he is a scary man, yes. He's a very scary guy. Uh, And, like... It's pushed so far that the four of them just they they hustle him out of there. They just leave. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They just they just grab him. It's like, okay, we need to go. Let's just get out of here. And the bartender's like, I wish you picked somewhere else to commit suicide. Yeah, why'd you gotta choose my bar, dude? That sucks. <laughs> like, I, I can't believe the hunchback didn't kill you just now. <laughs> If he didn't kill you, he must have had a real good reason. I'm like, oh, yeah, my hunch was paying off. <laughs> they they don't say that, but they should. No, but... Yeah, <laughs> and Eastwood is watching the, this whole thing staying out of the way. Right. Just carefully keeping in the background, which is important for his later use in the film. Yes, yes. Uh, it's a very good... Well, it's important that he did that. I don't know if it's a good thing he did it, but it's important that he did it. Yeah, it it allows him more flexibility in the story. Mm-hmm. So cool. Another cool montage of them casing the bank, both the bad guys and the good guys, keeping an eye on how things move around there. Yeah, they're they're counting how many paces or seconds. I'm not sure which uh, it takes the guys, the security guys to do one full lap around the bank. Yeah, I. It seems like it's got to be paces because it's something like 32 seconds, which seems too fast. That's, yeah, it must be paces. Uh, I, I love that, you know, the, we, we have the whole scene and we see the bad guys looking and, you know, we'll have them in extreme close up with the guys in deep focus in the background, marching away around the corner. Yeah. Oh, yeah, right. Um, yeah, just like their face taking up one half of the screen and then the guys patrolling taking up the other half. Super cool. It's like a split diopter thing, but it's just, you know, deep focus. Yeah, yeah. And they, they do that for like all the all the thugs. Yeah. And we also see Mortimer watching with his telescope. And after they, you know, we, we go through the whole scene, see everything going on. And then he pans over and realizes with a shock that Monko is looking at him from directly across <laughs> the street with binoculars. <laughs> it's like a rear window. Uh, yeah. That, that Hitchcock movie. Yeah. <laughs> like, oh, oh, all that weird Simpson boy is staring at me again. Oh, that sinister boy is looking at me. Yeah. <laughs> that's what he calls him the whole movie, boy. Oh, really? Okay. Oh, so that's why. No, that, I, I mean, Lee Van Cleef, he calls, he calls Monko boy or son. Oh, yeah, time. right, right. Where the thugs are always calling him amigo. Right. So Mortimer looks him up. He he goes through some old newspapers and finds a headline from when I I think it's from when Monko killed those three guys in the earlier scene. Oh, interesting if it is. Um, he's like posed for the shot here over the dead guy. Yeah, and uh, we we see Monko talking to this weird elderly guy in the shack by the railroad. <laughs> the prophet. He's the old man who knows everybody, but. Good luck getting him uh, to focus on the topic. 
Yeah, th- this guy was the coffin maker in Fistful of Dollars. Oh, shit. Okay. Uh, I thought it might be him. Yeah, his his sort of one... Uh, uh, the, the one guy on his side in the town in the first one, which is kind of mm. cool. He's very big in this one. He's he's quite silly. <laughs> it's, you know, crouched under blankets like, I don't want to help you. Do <laughs> yeah. you know, they tried to, the train company tried to buy my house and they said that if they, that if I didn't sell, they'd put the train right next to my house and it would drive me crazy. Yeah, it seems like it worked because they put it real close to his house. Like the, the the train passes while they're having the conversation. It just shakes the thing to shit. It's like that scene from the Blues Brothers. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and you just got to imagine it comes by every five minutes just to fuck with this old man. Because the train companies are that petty. Yeah, they had a lot of power. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You didn't. The, the train barons were like. The elite of the elites back then, weren't they? Yeah, they they fucking owned everything. So uh, it, it, it's interesting that it's a, a montage of the two of them learning about each other covertly, you know, with uh, Mortimer looking him up in the newspaper, Monko going to a prophet, or <laughs> our monk going to a prophet, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but he does know who Mortimer is. He's like, oh, Mortimer, why didn't you just say so? He's a former soldier, best shot in the Carolinas. Which, which, uh, you know, he's demonstrated and he'll demonstrate it again. But he's Monko's a pretty good shot, too. And he. Well, they're about to demonstrate their capabilities because it's the hat duel. <laughs> <laughs> when you described this scene in the chat, I thought it was going to be more like more comedic, like more Looney Tunes. But this is actually this is pretty tense. Well, there's tension to it, but it's still comic because it's completely just them shooting the hats away. Like, it could escalate <laughs> into a greater degree of violence at any time, but it starts with uh, Mortimer is having his laundry taken to uh, be cleaned, I guess. Right. The the uh, the Chinese man that just grabs the laundry with a terrified look on his face. <laughs> <laughs> and... And he comes out and, you know, he's at the door and the two of them are facing on either side of him and arguing about what he should do. Because Clint Eastwood or Monko is in, take it to the station. This guy's leaving town. <laughs> no, I'm not. Put it right down. Put it right yep. back in the room. Take it back. Take it to the station. Put it back. <laughs> and finally, the guy just screams and throws it and runs away. He's <laughs> like, I don't want to deal know. with these crazy people. Yeah. So the hat duel commences. He uh, first Monko shoots uh, Mortimer's hat off, and then every time he leans down to pick it up, <laughs> you know, he just shoots it a little further away. You know, it's it's like when someone's trying to get into a car, and you just drive a little bit further. Yep. <laughs> he keeps shooting it. I I really like one of the third or fourth times they they take a really long pause, and he looks at them. They look at each other and like. All right. And he leans down again. He's just about there and he shoots it again. It's like, oh, it's good comic timing. <laughs> I know, because they, it totally makes it feel like that's going to be, okay, like this is the end of the joke now. No, it's not. And then finally, he's unable to shoot it further. He aims and he's not able to shoot it out from under him because he's gotten out of range. Yep. And now we're going to see that... Uh, 
Lee Van Cleef is the better shot of the two. He definitely is. Or he's higher tech. Mm, yeah, yeah, he, yes, uh, that's what it is, because he assembles his special gun. Yeah, he, he's got his gadget. So he, you know, he, he gets his armature ready and he shoots uh, Monko's hat off his head and just into the sky over and over and over again until it has a cartoon sound effect and it falls somewhere <laughs> in the desert. <laughs> Ew. It's the Wiley e. Coyote crashing sound. It totally is. Absolutely uh, amazing. Uh, that actually reminds me, speaking of gadgets, did this come out? before or after the first Sartana, because Sartana... Oh, before. Yeah, Sartana is basically uh, this Lee Van Cleef character, but without the tragic backstory. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. The the Sartana movies are completely ripping off this movie specifically. Like, the first Sartana has a lot of Fistful in it, but Hmm. it has a lot of this one, too. And then the second one, it's just a whole lot of this one. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, he cuts like the same silhouette with oh, his yeah. poncho and hat. It's it's so distinct. Or not poncho, whatever you call that coat. Cloak, more of a cloak. Yeah. So uh, they they become friends, sort of. They're like, Sorry. well, I mean, I respect you. More on Mortimer's side of things. He's looking for apartments. Like, look, I I think we should work together. We're both after the same dude. There's more than enough money in all of this, uh, but. They jostle a little bit, you know, like, I'll I'll let you take all of the money for Indio and I'll just take the money for the gang members. He starts adding it up. I'm like, ah, I feel like you're getting the better of the deal there. The gang is worth a little bit more than Indio. It's not quite 50-50. Yeah, but ultimately he's like, eh, well, we'll play this thing out. I'll see how it works. Yeah. So their plan is for indio or for uh, monko to go undercover in indio's band but first we have a very important flashback that we don't get context for for quite a while oh uh the indio's flashback indeed him mm. uh with the pocket watch and uh him looking at two people making love in a room through a rainy window this this felt so samurai too. Oh, completely. And he, you know, the, he breaks in, he kills the guy. The, yeah, the the water on the window pane. Mm-hmm. Cool look. Really uh, cool. Him very intense staring through it. Uh, and uh, he attacks the woman, but we don't really see what happens. But we know that they have the pocket watch, and it's associated with the pocket watch music. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know that it, it will turn out to be uh, for a lot of people uh, a culminating event. Yeah, yeah, because uh, there's more than one pocket watch. We're going to find out. Indeed. So part of their plan for uh, Monko getting undercover in Indio's group is to break out that lieutenant who still had four years on his jail sentence, <laughs> our, uh, Sancho Perez. I love how he, I love how he does it because. Sancho is just like did not see any of this coming and he's like what the fuck he doesn't say anything yeah (laughs) yeah he just places some dynamite just inside the window and waves (laughs) (laughs) yeah and Sancho like didn't know he was going to get broken out doesn't know who this guy is he's just like oh shit I'm going to get blown up 
yeah, you know, he, he gets under the the mattress and it's a good pyrotechnic explosion. And it's clearly just them blowing up the wall of that jail for real. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. That was cool. And then he just comes out through the hole in the wall. Yeah. All in one shot where they clearly just had him come out after that pyrotechnics explosion is very impressive. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he goes back to their hideout with him. And they ask him, uh, so why did you happen to rescue our guy anyways? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, uh, seems really weird that this weird stranger knew to rescue our guy that knew where to find us. What's up with that? And I, I appreciate that he's totally honest about it. It's like, well, there's a pretty big reward on you guys. And I figured I'd tag along. Maybe I'll turn you into the law. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, like, maybe I won't turn you in. Maybe I will. I don't don't know. But that's why I'm here. And one of the gang shoots his cigar in half. Ooh, that guy just signed his death warrant. I mean, he was, it, it was waiting for him in the wings pretty soon anyways. Yeah, but, you know, now this, this confirms it. He, this raises the death flag. Yeah, I mean, he's coming soon. It moves him up the queue. Yeah, exactly. So him relighting the stub, uh, just, you know, nonchalantly, like, huh, how about that? What a thing to do. He, he relights <laughs> it, and Indio comes over and lights his spleef on uh, the stub. He's like, ah, I think this guy's fine. You know, that you, know, you, you, you <laughs> That you come here and say that, I I, I have to just uh, go along with you because you are an honest man. <laughs> yeah, what does he say? Something like, that is about the only response you could have given that would have made me not kill you. Yeah, okay. I'll follow along with that. I get you. That's the response I would have given. <laughs> yeah. So uh, he sends Monko along with three other dudes to rob the Bank of Santa Cruz t- as a diversion, basically. Oh, yeah. so, okay, I didn't, I, for some reason, I didn't clock that it was a diversion. I thought this was just supposed to be, like, a big crime spree where he hits every bank. And the diversion, yeah, now it makes sense. Now their plan makes sense. Yeah, it's it's mainly diversion, but, you know, it's also... Yeah, more bank. money, sure, yeah. Yeah, th- this bank is also pretty robbable. So, the next day, they're waking up, and, like, clearly it's still first thing in the morning, and he, uh... Monko's making coffee and only one of the, the, the only dude who's awake is, um, the guy who shot his cigar. Yep. He's like, man, that, that was some joke yesterday. I, I almost believed you. He says, no joke. Too bad you have to die. <laughs> <laughs> he just shoots them all. <laughs> well, it's, it's amazing. Cause he doesn't just shoot them all. It's this whole drawn out sequence where it gets very intense. He draws and he lets them stand up and get ready and all of them prepare for the battle. And like, there's the one dude who had just been awake and he's sort of ready. The other two guys are just in utter horror at the situation they're suddenly <laughs> in. <laughs> oh no, the new guy who joined our party three hours ago is actually a traitor. The one who said he would be. Oh shit. Well, they're just... Yeah, you know, these guys just woke up. They're so shocked to suddenly be in a life and death situation. <laughs> that would be scary. I, I can't be in a life and death situation without my coffee. I, 
I need at least like two hours to wake up first before Clint Eastwood starts shooting at me. At least two hours. Yeah, I I, I really like how they're just uh, they're they're so terrified. It, it's uh, a really fascinating moment because you don't usually get that. These are the bad guys, but they're just like Jesus Christ, we're we're about to be murdered by this guy. What the hell's going on? Actually, yeah, you don't get that. You're right. It's usually the civilians who are like, oh, I'm going to die to move the story along. Yeah. So, yeah, uh, obviously he shoots all three of them with no trouble whatsoever. Oh, yeah, right. Because he is he is a good shot. He's a good shot at, you know, normal range. Yeah, he's he's very good. Yeah, uh, he, he's a, an extremely skilled killer. That's what he does. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I kind of feel like maybe... I've been underselling how good he is because I'm talking about how Lee Van Cleef is better, but he's still like, he's still the man with no name. Yeah. Manco rides into Santa Cruz and he heads to the telegraph office. <laughs> uh, another one of those guys. With the faces. <laughs> yeah. Amazing face. Uh, he, he looks like every uh, bank clerk in like a cartoon. Oh, totally. <laughs> the bank, the cartoon Western bank clerk uniform. Yeah. And it's like, uh, I, I'm going to need you to wire or, you know, send a, a telegram to El Paso that the bank was just robbed. <laughs> <laughs> and the guy says, well, you know, I haven't heard any shots. But you might <laughs> hear one. <laughs> so cool. <laughs> Cuts to, you know, he, he ties him up and. Uh, has him send uh, the the message so that all of the riders in El Paso, all of the gunfighters there, ride off to Santa Cruz. So the town is pretty much cleared and everybody's inside because they know shit's going down. Mm -hmm. There's a, a, a bunch of bandits somewhere. Yeah. Do we already get to the scene where the bandits are all riding in or is that later still? Well, the, the, the bandits start coming in. They shoot down the telegraph wires on their way in, which is interesting. I do find that interesting because it sounds to me like the plan was to have the telegraph go out. Like the, the... Well, It did. That's the thing. They sent the telegraph. So those guys came out of town and now oh. the, the telegraph's been sent. So now they're not l allowing an, any more to come in. Oh, oh, so it was to get rid of the to send the the security from this town out to the t the bank that never actually got robbed. Yeah. Although in that case of course it would have gotten robbed. It was meant to get robbed, but this was yeah. So this okay, okay. Now now I get how the diversion works and why he shot the telegram. I thought he was doing it because he's like, "Hmm, I bet that new guy's going to betray me, so I better just shoot this in case he fucks it up." No, cuz it it went and that's why those guys all left. Okay, okay. Cool. I, I'm I'm with it now. Uh, so, yeah, they, they shoot down the telegraph wires and the bank's locked down. They know that there's trouble in town, so they just have the guys on the outside. They, they're they closed and there's just the one guard inside with a big old sandwich. <laughs> yeah, he's just chilling on the couch. Yeah. Um, like that same pose that you would expect someone to just take out their phone and start scrolling. Yeah, lunch break. Yeah. So there's this long, very patient montage. Just uh, the people moving around, kind of establishing where uh, all of our main guys are. And then, kaboom, they dynamite the bank. And just make off with the safe all in one motion. Yep. 
And it's so rapid that the ambush that Manco and Mortimer put all this time into just fails because they didn't expect them to just dynamite and take and make off with the bar. They they didn't know about that. Yeah, yeah, they didn't know that it was on like one of the outside walls. They thought they were going for like the big vault because that's that's what you go for. Yeah, it's the madman attack. Mm-hmm. So yeah, their whole ambush. They didn't even get into the position that they were supposed to be ambushed from. Yeah, no, no dice. They they were just like totally caught unawares. And Monko just figures that well, screw this. I'm on my way. Uh, I'm just gonna go uh, chase after them, and maybe they'll uh, you know believe that I just got separated from the other guys. And Lee Van Cleef's like, no, no, no. We gotta we gotta rough you up a bit. Otherwise, that's not gonna fly. Yeah, and he's like, I, I feel like this partnership's still a strong thing. Here's my idea. You go north. Just tell him to go north. You, you can figure out a way to talk him into it. Oh, yeah. And uh, <laughs> I, I love how I love how this works. Because <laughs> Lee Van Cleef had, uh, had or uh, Mortimer's got Monko's number from, from the get-go. It's like, tell him to go north. And it turns out Van Cleef plotted for everything that Monko's about to do. Well, it is even necessarily Monko because uh, they, it doesn't really. He, he's thinking ahead for everybody. Well, he, yeah, he figured yeah, out what not, India would do. It's it's not yeah. even up to Monko. Yeah, that's right. But he think so. The part of it as well is now that there's another additional forty thousand dollar bounty for the gang and the return of the money from the safe. So this is pretty big business. It's like, do you mm-hmm. really want to give up this partnership now? <laughs> and yeah he he gives him a wound he shoots him from behind to get just nick his neck which is obviously a wound that he could not cause himself could he well no not from behind you're right not he from behind not. yeah shit he's good yeah he he's really thought it through so it cuts to the gang trying to shoot up the safe. They only destroy the outer wooden case, of course. <laughs> no no breaking into it that way. And Monko shows up. And at first, like, most of the guys want to kill him. But Indio does let him go because of the wound. He's like, you served your part. Yeah, yeah. But I think part of it is also Indio... Because we find out, or at least he says, that he had Monko Peg from day one. I think a lot of it is, let's just see what this guy does if I let him mingle with the gang. Yeah, I think it's it's a totally a, a win-win situation for Indio. He kind of wants to die anyways, and if not, he's pretty cool with all of his underlings being picked off, so he has more money along the way. Mm-hmm. Associating with people who are dangerous is just... All gravy for him. Oh, yeah, totally. Because, you know, he figures no matter what happens, he'll still come out on top. Yeah. Uh, he He's the main character, he thinks. Oh, <laughs> oh my God, he does. He, he thinks he's like the hero who has this tragic backstory that he lost his girlfriend to some senseless violence for no reason. Although I don't think he sees himself as a good guy. He just because he he's really willing to die all the time <laughs> like he he will preserve his life most of the time but he's not that self-preservation oriented he he 
is kind of self-loathing and self-medicating, obviously. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this is where they have the discussion about where they should go, because uh, Indio is like, well, I figure we'll go north, <laughs> which is already what Mortimer had suggested. So, uh, <laughs> so yeah, so Monko wouldn't have to say anything if he was going to go with the plan. But he's like, I figure we should go south. That that seems like the better way to go. Uh, they'll be expecting you to go north. And then Indio's like, uh, I've got another idea altogether. They go east to Agua Caliente. Now everybody's in hot water. Oh, God, is that what that means? That's what it means, yeah. <laughs> oh, I love it. I love it. <laughs> and they send Monko in first. He's like, you gotta go get into hot water yourself and prove yourself. Uh, This is a town that does not take kindly to strangers. I I love how, like, the one guy adds, they don't take kindly to anybody. Yeah, they just don't like people there. So he comes into town, and it's kind of like the opening to Fistful of Dollars. He's coming down this empty street, and there are three gunmen who just sort of appear out of the walls. Yeah, like, like the ninjas... Or like the rival samurai who you have to fight to get through. Well, they're like a shooting gallery almost, because they they disappear into the walls again like a shooting gallery. (laughs) Oh, my God. (laughs) Like a carnival. Yeah, totally. (laughs) So he gets to the tavern, the taberna, and Mortimer is just on the second floor balcony of it. (laughs) (laughs) So good. And across from the tavern, there's uh, an apple tree, and there's a kid picking apples. So they're just shooting apples out of the tree. <laughs> yep. <laughs> the kid's got, got all these apples. He's like, oh, man, this way I won't have to pay so many uh, child sidekick union dues. Yeah. It's it's much easier for him in this town where they don't allow strangers. But the yeah, gunmen oh, yeah. retreat. They're like, okay, these guys can pick off apples from a tree <laughs> let's just go let's <laughs> not worth our time go. these guys are not ones we want to fuck with and uh, the the rest of the dudes arrive and mortimer is just having lunch in the tavern he, he's <laughs> really ready to have his uh, face off with these guys <laughs> yeah i love it. oh is this where uh, kinski sees him Indeed. He mm. recognizes him right away and is like, oh, oh, oh. do you now that he, we all... <laughs> he he comes up to him and he like raises his shoulder and is like, Do you wanna strike a match, brother? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I love it. Like now now that the robbery is done, that he could he could do his crazy, crazy shit. His character's name is Wild. It, yeah, his name is just Wild. Uh I, I really like uh, Lee Van Cleef or, or uh, Mortimer's reaction where he he's saying oh, do you want to strike a match on me for a smoke he's like I generally smoke after I eat why don't you come back in 10 minutes <laughs> <laughs> so good uh, yeah. and yeah he he is no longer able to constrain his Kinski mania and he pulls the gun <laughs> and is shot uh, yeah, so he's taken out, and uh, Indio, uh, he, 
I, I do believe him when he says, oh, I knew those guys were bounty killers right away. Here, I'm sure he knew Mortimer's oh. a bounty killer. Oh, God, yeah. He didn't recognize who he actually is. He doesn't know that he's Mortimer yet, because that's a big reveal for him later. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah, you know, <laughs> he, uh, he, knows that he's, he knows that he's a bounty killer. He knows he's dangerous. And he knows that he just killed probably Indio's biggest liability within the gang. Well, it's interesting because it's his biggest liability, but it's also one of his top guys. So one of his best shooters, one of his best fighters. Mm-hmm. And he was able to take him out like nothing, which means these guys can easily take out his whole gang. Yeah. You know, minus him and the big guy. Yeah. Well, In they're just going to take off. He, he's yeah. going to make sure that those are the only guys even facing them. Yeah. So uh, Mortimer tells him he can open the safe. He's like, I'll give you, you give me $5,000 and I'll open it. And like, that's too much money. He's like, well, that's the, that's the, how much it's going to cost. <laughs> I'm not negotiating here. Uh, any t- anything you do to open it, you're just going to ruin most of the money. You give me $5,000. And then to his credit, he does crack the safe. He proves himself. He's very good at it. Wonder where he learned that. I don't know. I mean, he's, he he has been a soldier and then question marks, right? Yeah. So was he abandoned at some point or did they teach that in like Civil War soldier school? I mean, I would have to assume he's just learned all of this stuff being in the biz. Uh, he he kills people for a living, so he has to learn a lot of specialized uh, tools. Oh, we didn't talk about his uh his saddle with like the that rolls down and oh yeah that shotguns. that's pretty great that's like something out of the quick and the dead oh it's t- oh my god it totally is yeah <laughs> so indio's but, plan is that everyone's gonna stay in hot water for a month <laughs> <laughs> yeah just to to cool until the heat go dies down right but we cut to the middle of the night and Monko is sneaking out to break into the storeroom through the roof because, you know, these are the sort of roofs that you can just like lift a few clay pieces off and climb inside and just take the tiles off. Yeah. And he he climbs down and Mortimer's already there inside, having already emptied the safe and put the money into (laughs) saddlebags. These two. Yeah. He's like, yeah, here, take these. Uh, We're we're, we're ready to go. And (laughs) he surreptitiously puts a note in the chest and, you know, carefully unrolls it and makes sure that it will be seen when it's open. But we don't get to see what it is. And then he locks it shut. (laughs) A shoe waiting to drop for some time. He no, he doesn't just lock it shut. He paints the lock so that it looks like it wasn't ever open to begin with. Yeah. Uh, and it, like, I, I think it's a lock that uh, I, I feel like he has the only key to it for a while or something. Anyway. I'm not they, sure. They climb off the roof and. <laughs> I love this part where like they're climbing down, but they feel. Like, it's Monko first. He feels his foot on something, and his face is just like, oh, fuck. <laughs> yeah, and he looks down, and it's... I, I, I can't remember if it's Indio or Nino. Nino's the big guy. Uh, 
those are the two that they climb down on. Yeah, it's it's the two of them. Uh, each of them, like, steps onto one of their shoulders, and they're <laughs> caught. <laughs> I, just, I just love it. They have, like, this great plan, but they don't look down before climbing down. <laughs> <laughs> and they pay for it. They get beaten up. They get the shit kicked out of them kind of a running thing in all of the Sergio Leone westerns. He got pretty beat up in the previous one. There's the part oh, yeah. you know, where he's locked in the basement. Um, and he really gets put through the ringer in the next one. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he has to heal like Raphael for a whole season. Oh, my God, yeah. He, yeah. Like, he's got to walk through the desert with that ugly guy. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, they, they get beaten up real bad by the whole gang. And then later, uh, uh, Indio's weird plan starts into motion. Yeah. It is a weird plan. It's like it's complicated. Buddy, it's, it's complicated, and I think it's too early to do this plan. But you know, it's a weed plan. You know, it, it's oh like <laughs> it, it's a plan that only You're makes right. sense because we've seen him constantly smoking weed the whole movie. <laughs> Shit, it's true. Okay, all right, all right, all right. L- l- listen to this. Okay, so, all right, Nino, big guy, you're my number one guy. I know I've got, like, five number one guys, but you're my number one and my number one guy. So, okay, so sh- we're going to... You're going to... You're going to... You're going to... You're going to stab Slim, okay? And then, and then we're going to, like, have him be revealed to be stabbed, and I'm going to, like be so sad dude and we're gonna blame it on like those two guys and then they're gonna no, no. go it all killing oh no they don't blame it on them remember they blame it on one of the other guys he's he's whittling down his dudes right 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 he he has nino sneak in, sneak into cuchillo's room and steal his knife first that's oh right yeah that's what it was he blames it on uh cuchillo and then he takes the he takes Cuchillo's knife and stabs Slim with it. Slim's the guy who's guarding uh, Monko and Mortimer. Yeah, yeah. And it, it uh, he gives the guns to Monko and Mortimer and set them free. But of course, the guns have no bullets in them. It's just like we want you guys to go run somewhere else, and we'll deal with you later. Our our guys will deal with you later. Yeah, you will deal with our guys later. Yeah, yeah, Nino's all like, you gotta leave before, or, yeah, Nino's like, uh, you got, you guys gotta leave before Indio finds out, because I'm betraying him, wink, wink, and then, like, <laughs> he goes over, he's like, okay, Indio, why did I do all this? Yeah, like, hey, Indio, I know you don't like questions, but what are we <laughs> what doing <the> f- here? <laughs> what the fuck is this? <laughs> and th- this is where Indio reveals, like, Okay, here's the thing. Those guys, when did you find out that they were bounty killers? And like, just now, tonight, before we started beating them up. He's like, I was aware of it the second they showed up. It's like, well, why didn't you tell anyone? <laughs> Damn it. Thought it was funny. It's like, look, I, I'm playing some 4D chess here. You don't get it. We'll send the guys after them. And they'll kill all the guys. And then we, just you and me, you're my number one guy. Just the two of us. We're going to make off with all the money. It's brilliant. Right? 
<laughs> but aren't they gonna come after us and the money too? Shut up, man. You it's don't like, you don't know how to play 4D chess. <laughs> it's like, no, no, you don't understand. See, that's where my plot ends. So obviously we get away. <laughs> we ride into the sunset. And then yeah. once we're disappeared over the horizon, that's it. We're safe. Yeah. The credits roll. Yeah, so Cuchillo they, they call Cuchillo to the murder scene. Uh, and they're like, so Cuchillo, what's what's your knife doing here? It's like, I, I, I don't know. Like, well, that's not a great answer. I mean, you see how this looks. <laughs> <laughs> yes. It's like, but I didn't but do it. <laughs> that's not where the knife is supposed to be. Yeah, your your knife is in my dog. Oh, my uh, God. Totally. <laughs> that's not where it belongs. Uh, so he, he kills Cuchillo. Uh, he he lets him run first. Yeah, you know, he has him. Uh, it's like I'm gonna be real nice about it. You can run, and if you can make it to your horse and run away, well, we'll we'll call it even. But he only lets him get like 20 feet. <laughs> oh sure, because you know he, he was. <laughs> it's all a show. This whole thing is a show. Yeah, because he then calls all the other guys out and is like, "Please understand, Cuchillo just killed." Uh, uh, who was the dude? Slim. Cuchillo just killed Slim. He, he he killed him to let those guys go. I don't know why he would do that, but it's clearly what he did. Now, I need you guys to go kill those guys, definitely. I mean, it's <laughs> airtight. Of course, he's like wailing and doing these dramatic sobs. He's like, I love Slim. <laughs> yeah. He was my number one guy. Sorry, Nino. I know I'm, I'm. This is part of the act. You're really my number one guy. Right. And he sends all of them after them. And then it's just him and Nino chilling. And then Groggy comes in and stabs Nino. And it's like, dude, you think I wouldn't figure out what you were doing? <laughs> <laughs> I was. Kind of hoping you wouldn't, but hey, Groggy, you're my number one guy. Yeah, Groggy, don't you understand? You're my number one guy. <laughs> Nino, that was all just, you know, we, we were playing. Uh, I, I was just playing out the long con. We'll go open the chest. We'll we'll figure things out. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. I love when he opens the chest. <laughs> yeah, it's the wanted poster with his laughing face on it. And the fact that it's a laughing face is so much makes it oh, even it's funnier it's great because it's his laughing face but it's like mortimer laughing at him as himself <laughs> it's so good and it, it wouldn't work if it was like just a mugshot wanted poster right it's gotta be laughing it's beautiful so there's the preparation scene mortimer and uh, monko outside the taberna loading their guns Leave Indio to me. And Monko agrees. It's like, all right, Indio's all yours. Yep. It's like he he's aware that there's some sort of history there, but he's not interested. <laughs> no, he 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 just wants to take a, a few dollars more. Right. So Indio has his whole plan to groggy, the new plan. We'll... <laughs> the new plan that he just <laughs> came up with. Yeah. It's like, look, those guys are gonna kill the whole gang, obviously. <laughs> And Groggy's like, well, don't you think your gang is going to kill them? No. He's like, no, th these guys are obviously much more skilled than my gang. Uh, they're all dead. We'll we'll wait for them to come back from killing the gang. And then we'll deal with them. Uh, question mark, question mark, profit. We we'll find out where they put all the money. 
<laughs> yeah, because yeah, they're definitely going to come back when they've killed the whole gang and they have all the money. Although he Although knows he... that they're after him, that they're bounty yeah. killers, so they'll come for him. True. I mean, $10,000 is uh, it's still a lot, even if you're already getting forty grand from all the other shit. Yeah. And... Pardon he me. might kind of get the feeling that it's personal. Like, he doesn't entirely get who Mortimer is yet, but there's a weird intensity to that guy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And Indio is a very suspicious guy. Yeah. So I mean, he, he's, he's paranoid. Sus- he's smoking weed all the time. Right. And paranoid <laughs> is more appropriate. Suspicious is sounds too normal. Yeah. He's maybe a paranoid schizophrenic, honestly. So they have this huge gunfight. Uh, great, big, awesome, climactic gunfight. There's the thing where Mortimer shoots the rope holding a wagon and it crashes into the building that all the dudes are hiding in. Yeah. <laughs> it was pretty great. And that, that So that's three of the dudes right there because they were like trying yeah. to snipe from inside this barn. Mm-hmm. Uh, there, there's the bit where Monko has his poncho and hat on... Uh, a rack in the in the barber shop, and they oh shoot yeah, and he's hat. sitting in, and he's sitting in a chair. Uh, I think they did that in one of the later movies that we saw. It's it's also in High Plains Drifter. High Plains Drifter borrows quite a bit from uh, like just iconography from this movie for sure. Mm-hmm. So this is when we have the flashback, and we sort of get the backstory without really explicitly anyone saying what it is. Mm-hmm. Because the Indio has a much more complete flashback. He's sitting there with the the pocket watch, just waiting for the gunfight to be over. Yeah. <laughs> and he flashes back and he remembers the whole uh, assault and murder of the girl. And I think it's the first time that we see that there is an image of the girl in the pocket watch here. Uh, I think, yeah, I think it is. We... Yeah, because we don't see that uh, on the pocket watch any of the other times. Yeah, I believe it's just here where it's directly revealed that she's in it. And he obviously was in love with her, but uh, there was a whole weird thing. <laughs> uh, a weird thing about how he was a psycho stalker and she yeah. had a boyfriend. Or like it could even be an infidelity thing, but obviously he is just who knows because he's such a maniac. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, like, it could be that he was married to her and she was cheating. Could be. Obviously, could also be was... that he was a stalker and she didn't even know who he was other than the creepy guy that follows her around. Yeah, and I, I guess the real point of it is that it doesn't really matter why he did it. It still makes him the obvious villain. So. Oh, yeah. I mean, <laughs> there's, there's no justification. Like, this, yeah. this tragic so backstory don't... doesn't... Yeah. They they do not uh, give it the the respect of having him have any sort of rationale. It it doesn't matter what his rationale is. He's bad. Yeah, he just takes the the pocket watch from the body. Yeah, and it's his now. So Mortimer shows up at the door and he calls out his own name. It's like I'm Colonel Douglas Mortimer. You recognize that name? And yeah. Indio does. He's like, oh shit. Okay, it's time to face off. Yep, yep. So he's ready to die. Uh, 
but Mortimer gets groggy first. Groggy runs out and gets shot instantly. <laughs> <laughs> oh, not his number one guy. Oh, no, groggy. So they, they, they square up. They, they're in this circle, which is really cool. Threshing yeah. circle. Oh, oh, is that what that is? Yeah. Okay, cool. Um, uh, not like a very outdated thing, but, you know, it would have been a circle for threshing wheat or whatever. Okay. But great duel. You know, they, they they set up the pocket watch. They're doing the whole, we're going to listen to the whole pocket watch theme, and then we're going to draw our guns. But I, I, don't, Mort- I don't know if... Mortimer's got his pocket watch that he turns on. No, no, it's not Mortimer. No, he does no, not have it. He does not. You're right. Um, it's Monko, Monko shows up right at the end, right when it's just about to end. And then we hear it start playing again because he has... Mortimer's watch that he stole. Yeah, we see Mortimer feel for it, like feel the chain's still there, but the watch isn't. Yeah, like ah, oh, you, oh you, you, oh you. Yeah, so he's gonna keep the duel clean. He's he's gonna be a referee. Yeah. Uh, so that you know they they play the whole theme again. It does the thing where it becomes orchestral, like it did mm-hmm. for that one with uh, Tommaso earlier. I, I love that tune because it's so much more like so different from the rest of the score. And it's so like intense, like, yeah, it's like this soft, fragile melody, but played with this huge storming orchestra, you know, the, the Morricone orchestra, which is very percussive and experimental. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, of course, you know, Mortimer shoots him down. He, he, oh, yeah. he takes the watch, returns it, and it is revealed that. The girl was his sister. See, I thought it would have, I kind of thought it, that he would have been the father of the girl. But it's uh, its hard to say how long this has been, you know. That's true. We don't know. Uh, we know that, uh, actually, we, we can kind of guess a little bit, because Indio has gray hair outside, like, in the present day, but no gray hair in the flashback. So right. it's been years at least, I would think. Mm-hmm. And it, it seems like Monk, or Mortimer has been doing this for quite a while. He's become extremely skilled. Actually, you know, they do reference it. Um, it's like he's basically because uh, Monko earlier tell, asks him like or Mortimer says like mm, something happened and then I quit the army. And Monko's like, what happened? Or is right. That an indiscreet and, and, question. Yeah. And he says it's maybe more of an indiscreet answer. Right. Yeah. Uh, so there, there's one last shock because uh as uh well well first mortimer leaves town he's like I, all right i'm 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 satisfied i don't even want the money you get the whole bounty take all of them take the money you you <laughs> just take all of it i'm good he's like well what about our partnership maybe next time yeah yeah it's like dude you, you don't even want like a thousand bucks <laughs> okay uh works for me and he's sure. counting up the bodies <laughs> he has like a huge wagon full of dead bodies just a fucking giant wagon just full of corpses <laughs> and he like lifts he, he he tosses uh he tosses indio on the pile and he's like adding them all up and it's like seventeen thousand. he's like huh wait a second and he realizes his count is off and he turns and shoots groggy <laughs> he was only wounded and about to ambush him <laughs> it's like ah there we go there we go i knew there was something not right <laughs> and oh, this man. is the thing that i really like mortimer has 
has sort of left town, but he comes back and he's like, hey, any trouble? And they're like, no, no, got it all under control. And then he literally rides off into the sunset. But then in a moment when Monko rides off, the sun isn't setting. <laughs> Did you notice that? <laughs> no, I didn't. So cool. <sighs> so, so it was setting for him because he's got to do his heroic right away. But Wonko, a little less heroic. He's still get the doing sunset. stuff. Yeah, they're yeah, well, him on to the next too. thing. Yeah. <laughs> right, it's not the end of his story, so the sun's got to get back up there and yeah. wait. So wait there's his like, turn. <laughs> there's, a, there's a few shots where you see uh, uh, Lee Van Cleef from Mortimer uh, against like this incredible orange sky, and then he rides directly into the sunset. And they're like, wow, that looks really beautiful. And then it cuts back to Monko in town, and he's starting to ride out of town, and it's just obviously midday. And he, he's like, oh, hey. <laughs> There are the saddlebags of money just hanging in a tree next to the road. <laughs> I'll take those. <laughs> he just rides away. It's like, that's oh, not sunset. He's just got other stuff to do. <laughs> and, you know, it. if all three of these stories are actually connected and if it's the same guy, it does make sense for this to be the last one because he just got so much money. If that was all he was looking for, he'd be retiring. He wouldn't be True. doing the good, the bad, the ugly. It's a huge payday. And it's it's weird because the good, the bad, and the ugly, he is sort of doing a weird sort of justice thing where he's running a scam with prisoners and having, like, bringing the guys in on the bounties and then rescuing them. Or or not, sometimes. He, it's, it's not that he intended not to save him. It's that... Right. Someone Just stopped kind of, him from saving yeah. him that one time, yeah. But a later film or yeah. earlier um, film, I don't know. <laughs> I do kind of feel like it's a different character. I think it's a different character each time, absolutely. Uh, that's why it's the Dollars trilogy. It's about the West and the violence for money of the West. That I think is a lot more accurate than than uh, just being this one guy goes on all these adventures even though he could stop and retire after any one of them. Yeah, and it's it's not a, a story about one mysterious stranger solving all the problems of, like, a classic Western. It's one mysterious stranger who rides into town and causes a lot of violence and then <laughs> run, rolls out of town with a bunch of money. <laughs> and maybe the problems are solved. Definitely some problematic people are dead. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. That's that's maybe more the thing. So it's it's that heroic bloodshed. It's the the money for violence and violent capital. But yeah, a whole interesting thing. Great fucking movie, right? <laughs> I I really liked this one. I mean, I, I'm gonna say I liked this more than Fistful. Um, quite a bit more. Uh, but also less than uh, the good, the bad, the ugly. But but that's not fair because that one's a masterpiece. Yeah, I mean, for me, I would put this and Fistful equal, but that's a minority opinion. Like, most people would consider this one to be the superior one. Certainly, it's more stylized. Uh, mm -hmm. the, the montage work, like the, the, the thing with uh, them looking at the wanted poster in the same place at the same time. but Oh, with the uh, eyes, yeah. With the eyes and the gunshots and everything. The, you know, there's nothing like that in the first one. No. But, uh, yeah, I, I kind of like 
how streamlined the first one is and how it almost feels like a horror movie that it's it's very empty and quiet and eerie mm-hmm. yeah and this one's kind of zany <laughs> this one's got a really weird energy to it it's totally unique it it, it does feel pretty anime mm-hmm. like you were saying earlier not just samurai movie but like anime in general yeah it, like just especially the faces and how big people's performances can tend to get for all of the background characters like they just really make an impression every time mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. and and yeah yeah nobody really looks generic everybody looks like something yeah uh great cast great uh, uh amazing faces kind of cast mm-hmm. uh so yeah pretty rad obviously this is from the inactive stack so it's not technically replaced by anything but of course the good the bad and the ugly will be up there next time we stop in of course yeah we will do that eventually i don't know when but we will do it yeah for sure and then duck you sucker which is the other leone western that doesn't have eastwood but i think it has lee van cleef again i can't remember it's been a while since i've seen it what's what's that called duck you sucker duck you sucker I, I believe it has James Coburn and maybe also Lee Van Cleef again. Uh, and there's a lot of dynamite fights. <laughs> as I recall. Dynamite fights. Oh, cool. Uh, also known as a fistful of dynamite. <laughs> yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah. Right as, on. as I recall, a pretty cool one. It's the other Sergio Leone Western uh, uh, of that era. Because then later is Once Upon a Time in the West, which for some reason is yet to come out on Blu-ray, which is ridiculous. Oh, really? That one's amazing. That one has Bronson. Oh, shit. <laughs> it's a real breakout Bronson performance where he's in the Old West. And it's awesome. This ain't over. It ain't over. All right. So any last thoughts on for a few dollars more before we move to our second picture this evening? Uh, No, I think uh, I think we've covered it already. And we're back for part two where we're talking about. Stanley Kubrick's final picture from uh, 1999, Eyes Wide Shut, based on the novel Traum Novelle by Arthur Schnitzler from the 20s. Oh, from the 20s. Oh, shit. Cool. Traum Novelle meaning dream story. Oh. So... And my understanding is it's very faithful to the original source material, that it's it's pretty beat for beat, which is cool, interesting. Cool. Uh, um, and it is dreamy. It's very dreamy of a film. Yeah. Uh, in fact, it even ends with, uh, like, after Cruz finally tells Kidman everything that's that he's been up to, it even ends with her being like, well, you know, if... Oh, I... I can't remember exactly we'll get what she said, but yeah, she she makes reference to the idea that it might be a dream. Yeah, there there's sort of an unreality to what happened to him. His strange sexual odyssey from Milan to Minsk. Uh, it's <laughs> it's it's strange. Like it doesn't fully make sense, but it kind of does because he establishes it in such a strange way. Cruz is brilliantly cast in this movie. I feel like at the time when this movie came out. His performance was not well liked. I don't think either was Nicole Kidman's, but they're both great. They're okay. I, I understand folks not liking uh, Tom Cruise's performance, but Nicole Kidman was 
by all by all metrics, she was flawless. She's great. She doesn't have all that much to do, but she does so much with every second. Yeah, she's <laughs> only she's only in like three scenes. Four. She's, four she's scenes. so important in all of them. And well, the story doesn't happen without her. Well, yeah. And I mean, well, yeah. Well, obviously, but uh, and and Tom Cruise, I mean, he's just great. Like he's <laughs> so perfect in it because he is him. Like it's a movie that kind of uses his star persona against itself in a really interesting way. <laughs> uh, when this movie was first coming out, I remember seeing commercials for it and not having the faintest idea what it was going to be about. I remember it being really controversial right away because, yeah. you know, the the sex, they, they they digitally altered it when it came out. To oh. like to to cut cut it down from an X to an R. Uh, they in in the original theatrical version, they digitally inserted men in robes in front of a bunch of the sex acts in the big orgy scene later. Oh, interesting. Mm. Okay, just Cause... digitally inserted dudes like more guys just watching in front of the things happening, so they're obscured. Oh, so you would just see like say a leg sticking out from behind one of the guys. Yeah, or something. Yeah, like that that whole sequence where he's at the orgy, uh, they're just random dudes in masks and robes. Right, yeah. Yeah, yeah so, so because uh, in, in the version we watch, you definitely see it. Yes, we, we watch the, the proper unrated, uncut version uh, that's on Blu-ray these days. Yeah, uh, and like I've always kind of wondered what it was about, but it was all... But I was always also like, well, I don't want to watch it if it's a porno. So I'm because and of course, I had no idea what it was going to be for the longest for like, well, for 20 years more than. Yeah, I mean, it did not have a good reputation until recently either. I, uh, when it first came out, it was unpopular and it's really only taken like the last few years for it to start to get rehabilitated. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I guess the the answer to the question that I had been asking since 1999, what the hell is this movie about, is Tom Cruise learns what sex is. Yeah, kind of. It's it's weird because it's sort of about these famous, beautiful people being married, which is yeah. what they were at the time. They were, they were a real married couple. Yeah, that, that was interesting. I didn't know that for the first time watching the film that because the only because I remembered him being married to Katie Holmes, but that was right. later, I guess. That was later. That was after or that was like the Oprah couch thing was related to him marrying Katie Holmes. Yeah, yeah. That, that and, was in uh, the run up to that. So that was like 2005 ish. I oh, want to wow. say. When, when did he get into Scientology? Oh, well before, I think. Oh, uh, he, well before he's, this? Yeah, I think he's been with them for quite a while, but it was something that he didn't really mention or talk about all that much. Uh, it, it's okay. something that the, the, that is another one of those things that much more colored him later. Right, right. So he wasn't at this point in time, he wasn't famous for being the Scientology guy. Right. He he was a rising star still. Or I guess he was like the biggest star by this he point was, already, because this is after he was huge. Yeah, this is after the first Mission Impossible. He'd already done, obviously, Top Gun and Days of Thunder and all of that stuff. So it's him in the period where he had something to prove, where he was like, 
I'm not just a movie star. I'm an actor. And it's it's interesting that this is the film that he chooses to do it because he is kind of playing. I don't I don't know if he's playing himself, but he's playing the persona that we kind of associate with him. Yeah, that, that's what's really interesting about the movie is how brilliantly cast he is in retrospect because of how his public persona now much better aligns with the strange alien creature that he is in this versus how he was known then as just, you know, top action star guy. Oh, yeah. Yeah. He was like the action, the the hot pretty boy, not the weirdo back then. That's right. And he still kind of is just main the action, mainly the action guy. It's just now people know a bit more about his public persona. It's this weird area in the middle of his career that I think is his most interesting stuff where everyone kind of started to let him be an adult. It's the only period <laughs> he was allowed to. Because <laughs> this is also when he does Magnolia, where he's uh, basically one of those uh, pickup artist guys. Oh, okay. Have you ever seen Magnolia? Great movie. I've seen part of it. I saw like like the last part of it. So when the frogs start falling down. Okay. He's in that. He's basically a pickup artist type guy. Like he does seminars on for how incels can pick up women. Basically, he's one of those dudes. That's oh, his thing in the movie. So it's really interesting. Guys. Him doing that. Uh, Again, a really interesting way of using the Cruise persona, where it's just this uh, uncannily beautiful person who doesn't really seem to know his way around sex that well in a weird <laughs> sort of way. Yeah, yeah. Or see, sexuality. Yeah, see, that's that's totally the vibe I got from this movie about his character. Mm. He has had sex. He knows what sex is. And intellectually, he knows that guys want sex. Right. But he doesn't. He doesn't. He might actually be asexual. He may be, or he may be in the closet. He it's certainly something, the... uh, there, there's that bunch of fucking college students who unleash a bunch of gay slurs at him at mm. one point in the original novel. The character is Jewish and it's pretty central to the story. It's why he cannot enter this higher level of society because it's the 20s. <laughs> yeah. Uh, in New York. Or I guess there it's Vienna. It's it's an Austrian novel. Oh, so okay. he really couldn't. In, oh, yeah, I in guess. In Austria in the 20s. Yeah. <laughs> that was, uh, what was but going course, on in uh, Europe yeah, in hmm, the 20s and 30s? Uh, some, that some was difficult stuff for Jews. Uh, <laughs> So, yeah, in, in the original Tram Novel, it's uh, them like this. The scene does happen. It's just it's a bunch of anti-Semitic remarks rather than gay slurs. OK, OK. Um, interesting. So I, I think it is kind of meant to throw some question towards his sexuality, especially in light of the way he reacts to his wife's sexuality. It's shocking to him. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, <laughs> well, the whole thing, he, like, she's confessing all this deep, dark stuff, and he's just like, what? What? He's, Women he's don't shaking. think like that. Yeah, it's like, I don't. What? I, you're crazy. Who says it? Women? Because she's complaining about him being a doctor and seeing women naked all the time. It's like, yeah, but I'm a doctor. That's yeah, I 
I, I have a card sex. to prove it. Yeah, please. Yeah, yeah. Him, him with that card later is, is so funny. <laughs> but the just the, the idea that it's like, I, I, do people think about sex that much? I never even considered it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Shocking to him, and it it throws him off balance. It it's what like creates the whole plot of the movie. Just like, wait, sex, sex though? Huh? People, sex. People want this. Yeah, like, I, I mean, I know guys it. want this, but they girls do too. Everyone does. Yeah, huh? I I never really considered it, and, and then especially when he goes out and meets that other girl, and he's like, "Wait a second, I'm hot. Everyone wants <laughs> me, particularly. I have a lot to think about." <laughs> yeah, and then it's like, "I'm hot. Everyone wants me, particularly. I can bumble my way into fucking Jeffrey Epstein's island." Right. It's like he realizes that he has this sexual capital that he has not been exploiting. Like he's willing to exploit every other capital, but it's like, well, maybe if I have this, this is my ticket to the next echelon. Yeah, but because he's just learning about sex right now, he can't exploit that (laughs) sexual capital. (laughs) He's too awkward. He can't close the deal, as it were. Him at the party, he's so awkward. Just the 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 person who just wants to hide in a corner with the dog at the party energy that he brings to his every moment hovering in the background of people having sex. <laughs> oh, oh, at the sex party. Yeah, there, the there's sex two party. important parties. Right. And like at the other one, he's a little more in his element because it's a party that's with someone who's in a higher echelon than him, but he's invited. So yeah. he's peeking into that high society there, but he's allowed there. Mm-hmm. But and he knows just what to say when uh, to go along with the fact that he's a doctor. The story begins, or the movie begins with naked Nicole Kidman. Fuck, she's so good. She's great. Uh, she's uh, getting dressed, and Tom Cruise is getting dressed, uh, getting ready to go to this party. And she's asking him like, "Hey, how do I look?" And of course, he's not even looking at her. He's like just fixing his own ties. Like, you look beautiful. Yeah, he is completely unaware of his stunningly beautiful wife. Uh, he, he, it's it's a running thing. He has no fucking clue what he has. Well, he has no fucking clue about sexual energy. And, like, mm-hmm. she is bursting with this sexual energy from minute one. And it's just completely wafting past him entirely like pheromones. I've never heard of them. Pheromones? I hardly knew her. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so notably, they're going to a Christmas party. This is a Christmas movie. This is a Christmas movie. Um, An incredibly Christmassy movie. It's. I love the lighting. Uh, it, oh, like, there's so, so much, so much of like this. This version of New York is like lit with like those those yellow like little Christmassy bulbs. And yeah, I just Christmas could... bulbs everywhere. It, it, like every shot outside of their apartment is just Christmas lights. I wish we could just light things like that normally and just have that be the default lighting style we use because it looks so pretty. But also, I'd get I get sick of it, and then right. it wouldn't be so pretty if it was all exactly. the time. That's the point, and it's 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 such an incredible, comfy setting to just hang out in for this movie. And I would say that this is maybe the best looking Stanley Kubrick movie. Is that say, fair to say? You've seen most of them at this point now. That's a tough call though, because uh, 2001 exists. 
I know, like, I mean, I Clockwork Orange, Barry Lyndon, The Shining. Yeah. Uh, they're they're all incredible looking movies. I just feel like this is the one that moment to moment, there's so much that is just visual splendor. And just the the Christmas lights, the snow, the 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 strange warmth of it in the middle of the cold. It's it's like the shining thing, but it leans more into the comfort. Yeah, yeah. And like the, it doesn't feel cold because like you know these characters wearing like these cool comfort looking but still sleek uh winter jackets oh yeah it's it's 99 everyone's very cozy in their upper class new york uh wealth like th- um, that's the thing everyone is cushioned by wealth even uh, uh bill and alice uh, uh, as Cruz and Kidman, Bill and Alice, they're the lowest rung, but they're also fabulously rich to a degree that neither of us could imagine. <laughs> Their apartment is insane. Like, yeah, it's they live so on the park. Huge. Yeah, like like it looks like a mansion from the inside, but it's like, no, oh, this is just what apartments are when you're a doctor, I guess. Well, he's like not just a doctor. He's a doctor for high class rich people. Yes. Yes. So this is another question I have about this movie. Do you think he's a good doctor or do you think he's just kind of a himbo? Oh, no, he is a shit doctor. He is so bad at it. And Ziegler keeps him mostly for entertainment. I think he's competent. I think the thing is, he's just not really capable of doing anything all that serious because he is just a rich people's doctor and he's there to deal with like end of life stuff for really wealthy old people or, you know, day to day problems that are kind of minor. Yeah. Yeah. And, and uh, when he does encounter uh, something that's not really a wealthy old people problem, like, uh, you know, the girl overdosing it a little bit, he goes all, he goes, he almost talks to his patients like a pediatrician would talk to child patients. He's super condescending. And uh, as well, he just doesn't seem to know how to talk to someone outside of his social circle at all, like up or down. Yeah, yeah. No, he he knows exactly the exact correct thing to say within his uh, strata, within right. his uh, layer. But like. He doesn't know how to talk to the people who are like way above him. And he, he, the way he acts when he's talking to people lower than him, it's like, oh, this is so quaint. This is how these people live. Oh, this house has, is so small. They have gifts in the bathtub because that's where they have to put them. <laughs> that's funny. Yeah, he, he's condescending. Like I said, uh, he, yeah. he doesn't really get how anybody lives at any other strata than the one he lives in. And I think to some extent, this is probably uh, coming from the original novel, which, you know, it's the twenties. Things were a little more stratified then. Yeah. I feel like he'd have a little bit better of an idea, but he's a weird dude. He's an alien. uh, It's funny that you, like that you mentioned that he's an alien because independently of before I even talked to you about the movie, I was like, this guy's a robot. Yeah, he feels like a robot or an alien learning about sexuality. The the way he encounters it, it's just with such wonder. Like, yeah, huh, but every time <laughs> but every time he gets a new piece of information, he has to like just stop all processes for a moment. 
Well, to be fair, the the initial uh, learning comes when he's very stoned and it just takes him by surprise. So oh, yeah. another uh, another thing tying our two movies together, they both have prominent characters smoking weed. Not something yeah. you see in a lot of movies, honestly. Uh, actually, it I I was shocked when I saw it in in this one. Yeah. Um, because like ninety nine high society, you did not smoke weed. Scandalous. That's for like the stoner comedies. The high well, I, society people don't do that. Well, and, and I like that there's really no judgment about it at all. They're not. It's not even a thing. They're just like. I mean, obviously, the two of them are smoking weed. You know, they have the money to buy it, and nobody's going to arrest them. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so yeah, they're, they're, just they're just doing it. Yeah, who cares? But of course, first we have the Christmas party that they go the, to. Yeah, yeah, the Christmas party by uh, hosted by Victor Ziegler, who is Sidney Pollock. <laughs> uh, he he's great. He's, Sidney Pollock fucking rules. Uh, yeah, he's I guess Tom Cruise is his doctor, and that's. Yes. That's the only reason why he gets invited to these parties. Well, that's who that's he, he only knows anyone because he's a doctor. Uh, all of the connections are due to him being a doctor because uh, that's how he knows the woman who's interested in him later. Like the only person outside of that would be the sex worker who approaches him. And I right. guess obviously and the, he tells her that later on she's that he's a doctor, of course. Of course, he's got to tell her. And and there's the costume shop proprietor who isn't technically related to him as a doctor, but he went there because he thought the guy who owned the costume shop was someone who was his patient. <laughs> he he thinks that being a doctor is like a get out of jail free pass, and well, he uses it like one. I would not say get out of jail free pass. I feel like it's a key to the universe. It's. Her, it's his way to open doors. It's like, well, You're I'm a right, doctor, so, so I can get into places, uh, anything I want to do. Well, hell, I'm a doctor. Doctors have social mobility. I have complete social mobility, but he does not realize that his social mobility is not that complete. The the other thing, when I was introducing myself at the beginning of the show, the other – I was it was between the Shanna with no name and I'm Dr. Shanna Rain, a podcaster. Here is my card from the Podcasters Bar Association. Just to prove that I am a podcaster. Oh, he he loves his card. He, he everybody sees it. It's 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 wild because you he really starts doing it a lot once you already know people are after him and have told him to stop looking. And he's like, <laughs> yes. ah, but I gotta know. So I mean, if I just show them this card, I'll find out. I mean, it's it opens doors. <laughs> it does open doors. In fact, the first time he does it, it literally opens a door. It does. More. It does. And it never actually fails. No, it works because it, it is that cushion of money. Like the golden parachute does ultimately work. He is able to get into things. It's just he's not so able to get out of things. Mm -hmm. He's mm -hmm. not rich enough that he can get out of any situation, but he is rich enough that he can get into any situation. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> and in fact, the whole movie is him grossly overestimating his own power and influence as he tries to solve yes <laughs> a murder mystery that may not have even happened right it's it's a murder mystery turned in on itself where is it just him being paranoid and weird about sex maybe, maybe or <laughs> maybe entirely 
Yeah, or have all these wealthy and powerful people actually uh, murdered a prostitute and made it look like an overdose. And I mean, yeah, we know they do it. Both are completely valid. Uh, yes. I, I, I love that both interpretations of the story are equally likely, and it ultimately doesn't matter because it's not what it's about. And it it's kind of the sick joke at the middle of it that the murder mystery isn't what's important and that this person's death is kind of beside the point. Yeah, yeah. What what's important is uh him. Hmm. Well, the the important thing is not this person's life or death because they're just some lower class person. They sacrifice their life for him maybe or maybe they just died because, you know, they they have lower class problems. But the the thing with him, it, it's the important thing is him learning a lesson. <laughs> the important thing is him suddenly understanding is like, oh, yeah, my wife is really sexy and wants me. What the hell am I doing? I mean, fuck, that's that's, a, and that's you know, that's that's, that's a, a worthy lesson. lesson. It's a worthy lesson for him lesson. to learn. Yeah, it's like, holy shit, I'm married to Nicole Kidman. And I have been for all this time. Wow. Yeah. Oh, let's talk about Nicole Kidman, because very quickly after the party begins, she's like, I got to go to the bathroom and then does not go to the bathroom. Right. She she just kind of wants, wants to split up from him and uh, see what else is going on at the party, because she has desires that he does not have. Mm-hmm. Uh, she goes to the bar. It doesn't take her long to get. Before wasted. she meets Pepe Le Pew. Pepe. Oh, my God. He is Pepe Le Pew. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, he he watches her drink from his glass, waits for her to put it down, and then grabs it and drinks the rest of it himself. She's like, excuse me, I think that's my glass. Oh, I am absolutely certain of it. Oh, ma chérie. Yeah, he is completely <laughs> a cartoon character. Like, he is the French seductor. Well, he's he's Hungarian. He's Hungarian. Yeah, he, you know, he is... Clearly just, you know, he's Pepe Lamoco or Pepe Le Pew. He's like, oh, why don't you come away with me to Europe, my lady? And he's like, oh, you're very sweet. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, so yeah, he's hitting on her. She's like, oh, well, I'm married. But, oh, my God, she's so – the word I keep coming – there's two words I keep coming back to for Nicole Kidman in this, uh, in this first party. Radiant and – intoxicating well one of the the important things to consider regarding the length of this movie's production is always on the hundredth take maybe <laughs> it would be another <laughs> thing to consider that right yeah her every line reading is totally wild because she's probably been doing it all day uh this was and still holds the Guinness World Record for the longest continuous film shoot. Oh, okay. Because when you said it was the longest film shoot at the time, I was like, but then Boyhood kind of. Right. But that was only like a few days a year for however many years. This is just 400 days in a row. Oh, my God. I would. (laughs) I would hate movies. Well, it's an actor's (laughs) film. Like for for Cruz and Kidman, they're a married couple. They're living on set. Uh, Kidman has said she had a pretty good time. (laughs) <laughs> it was a cool was a pretty good time because you know they they're just living there this is what they do as actors it's like well we have our day job the two of us are together as a couple you know whatever you know not a bad time all right well that's that's cool uh, usually i hear horror stories from these kinds of movies 
Right. And it depends the type of actor you are where like someone like uh, Tom Cruise or Kidman, like I would say, especially Tom Cruise. These are people who are actors like acting is their profession. And it's also what drives them. Like the, these are people who really care about acting and the craft. And they're like, for 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 Kidman, it would be a thing of like, all right, I just keep doing it until I give the director what he wants. That's the job. And Tom Cruise, it's probably a little bit more like, no, oh, what do you want? <laughs> but, you know, he'll still do it every day because he's a pro. Well, actually, this whole movie is Tom Cruise going, what do you want from me? I don't understand. Yeah. Right. And that's that's, again, the brilliance of the casting of him in this. He's so perfect for it. But yeah, her performance when she's dancing with the guy like every word that comes out of her mouth is like so seductive, but she's never not shutting him down. She's like, um, was it, was it Alice at the beginning in lost highway? Was that also the name she had? I think it was, I think uh, it was. Yeah. Uh, Patricia Arquette in lost highway. It, it's, it's the same dynamic where she's like, Okay, tell me more. <laughs> it's like I, I, I will nonchalantly potentially agree with everything being said, but uh, I'm just listening. Yeah, yeah. Actually, there's there's a few parallels between this and Lost Highway. Quite a few. Um, I mean, I, as I mentioned last week, how I introduced it was a very Lost Highway Christmas. Mm-hmm. Very liminal film. Yeah, yeah. And it's another uh, loop. Oh yeah, true. But like. Her performance here when she's dancing with the dude is so good that like through the TV, I can smell the alcohol on her breath and the perfume coming off of her. It's like so much. See, for for me, the first thing I think of is the the cologne on the the older guy. You know, <laughs> definitely one of those like classic 70s, really musky ones. Oh, sure. Uh, I, yeah. Yeah. So she's like dancing with this guy, but she's always like, I've got a husband i'm married oh well i will make several not so subtle suggestions that you should cheat on your husband with me and that is the only thing we are going to talk about yeah he's he's a complete cartoon yes uh the the guy's name is sky dumont is the actor sky dumont oh what a, what a great name i wonder if he's part of oh wait no i'm thinking of the duponts i mean just oh. dumont <laughs> but as as they're dancing, uh, Kidman sees Cruz uh, being completely obliviously hit on by these two gorgeous models. Although it's weird, she thinks he's not as oblivious as he is. Yeah, she's jealous. She, she is jealous, and and in and fact, that's like, like the point of the conflict. Right. I I love this moment where it seems like like she is kind of flirting back with this guy, and she's certainly not deflecting. And these two, we we cut to him, these two ladies both obviously trying to seduce him. And he is so oblivious, like comically oblivious. Like, oh, wow. Yeah, I remember meeting you that one time. Huh? How about that? You had something in your eye and I gave you a handkerchief. He's like, did (laughs) you know I'm a doctor? Want to see my doctor's ID? (laughs) Look at this. Uh, You know what it reminds me of? It. In the room, uh, Mark, Greg Sestero's character, mm-hmm. every time Lisa's like about to have sex with him, he's like, what's going on? What, what is, is going this? On? What, what are you doing? Yeah. Johnny's my best friend. Yeah. Uh, well, what's going on here? The 
the lighting, the music, the beautiful dress. And like, she has none of those things. <laughs> uh, yeah, th- these two young models, like they, they both, he, he has this history with one of them, but they're both so obviously into him because he's Tom Cruise, but he oh, just yeah, doesn't totally. get it. <laughs> to, to say that he has a history with them is being pretty generous Ooh, yeah <laughs> but yeah he's that's, like that's how he'll describe it to alice later it's like oh well i knew her from before it was just a, you know i knew her as a doctor yeah right <laughs> but yeah he's like where are you guys taking me <laughs> like <laughs> what's going on i don't <laughs> understand what's this but he gets one thing i've kind of noticed the second time watching through is it's not until the end that he has to confront his own oblivious. He always gets saved by something. Right. Uh, this time he gets saved by uh, Ziegler's assistant being like, hey, come deal with the OD'd hooker in the bathroom. Yeah, there, there's a situation we need you to deal with discreetly. Well, I, and before that, I, I guess we should mention that he ran into his old school buddy, Nick Nightingale. Nick Nightingale. What a fucking name. It's like... With that name, you were always going to be a piano guy in a lounge. Yeah, great name for a lounge pianist. Uh, this is this guy is played by Todd Field, who's a pretty major director these days. He's got a lot of Oscar buzz this year for Tar. Oh, okay, cool. Um, I haven't seen it, or no, really I have not seen it's about, it either. But yeah. It's it's about cool. a famous composer. It's a biopic. Oh, right on, right on. Uh, yeah, yeah. Him seeing and meeting Nick Nightingale is also a very important part of this yes. uh, movie. Yeah, yeah. And so Nick Nightingale is a dude who he knew from med school. Again, he knows him through being a doctor in some sense. Yes, uh, they went to school together, but he dropped out. Yeah, Nick Nightingale. Uh, he he didn't drop out. He flunked out. <laughs> oh, is that oh, okay? Yeah, I I think he he specifically just couldn't cut. He he could not cut it. Well. He's not too bright either, but he's done no. in a different way. Yeah, he he makes bad decisions. He makes terrible decisions. Well, I, I think his decision was like, hey, well, I know this one way that I can really impress this doctor guy who otherwise completely overshadows me. I guess it, it could entirely be his element of social climbing, even though he should be more aware that there's no chance he can socially climb here. He should be aware that he should keep his mouth shut completely. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he really should, given the situation he's specifically in later. But, you know, he he, he wants to be big. He's He's yeah. got to be a big guy. Well, you know, maybe maybe Tom Cruise is just the first rung on that social ladder for him. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. No. Yeah, the first rung on the social ladder going down, maybe. Oh, well, I mean, definitely, ultimately. So, uh, yeah, he talks to him. He's like, oh, yeah, well, I'm I'm here in New York. My family's in Seattle. Uh, I play at Go where the club. gigs go. Yeah, yeah, I go where the gigs go. And it's like, wow, that's a... Uh, that's you, quite a uh, life you have. Relocate, you relocated to the other side of the country to be a pianist. He's He travels. He, you know, he, he's just a dude who plays piano wherever. Although when you consider what his one gig probably pays, it's probably worth relocating for. That's probably the thing is that like this is his yearly New York tour where he makes most of his money for the year. And then the rest of the time, maybe he just plays gigs where he wants to uh, and just enjoys being a jazz pianist. You know, that's 
Yeah, that that does sound that that makes a lot of sense. And that's not so bad. No, it isn't. I mean, if I could get away with working one year a month and then just live comfortably the rest of the time, I'd do it. Of course. And that's kind of an acting gig, right? If you have the right sort of acting gigs. True, true. We established that he knows Nick Nightingale and that he knows where Nick works during the day. Yeah, the the Uh, place he's playing piano at, uh, other than when he's playing uh, rich people's fabulous mansions. Yeah, yeah, which he doesn't mention here, even though he's he's doing it. Person. Yeah, yeah. He doesn't need to. He's he's currently doing it. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, Tom Cruise, hot girls, uh, called away, o- overdose. Right. There's this, this girl, Mandy. Yeah. This bathroom. Oh my oh. god. I have never felt so. I never. I never. This. This bathroom is me realizing that I actually have no idea how rich people live. This bathroom has a fireplace and a couch. It's it's uh it's like a bathroom that's also a study or a living room. You know, it, it's got an office in it. Like they were having sex, and we don't even initially realize that Sidney Pollock is getting dressed elsewhere in the room. He like emerges from the back of the room, putting suspenders on. <laughs> that bathroom is bigger than my entire suite. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And he's like, "Oh, thanks for coming." Uh, yeah. So she just she's hopped up on goofballs and she overdosed. It's uh, a speedball specifically, which is I think coke, uh, cocaine and uh, heroin. Yeah, I think it's cocaine and heroin. Uh, so he knows how to deal with it. You know, he he's. He's aware of how to deal with this sort of thing. I would say in high society, it's probably it's something he dealt with. Problem. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, just another uh, woman overdosed in the bathroom. This is like the main the main part reason of his house calls, probably. Yeah, it's, it's something he knows how to deal with. So no problem. <laughs> <laughs> we never see him do anything doctorly with this woman. No, but it's it's a pretty basic thing where he's like, okay, yeah, I can see that this is a thing I've dealt with and know how to deal with. Give her this, uh, let her rest. And he's like, oh, I was going to hustle her out of here in a cab because uh, this could be an embarrassment. It's like, just keep her here for a couple hours. Let her rest first. This is, that's all I'm asking. Yeah. When she comes to, he's like, okay, Mandy, listen, don't do drugs. Stop it. <laughs> he's like, don't. Remember. Hey, this is it's it, it's clearly a rehearsed speech, a speech that oh, yeah. he has given to uh, society women before. And is like, now, you know, don't do this again. But he talks like he's talking to a child. True. But I like I don't think it's even a thing that he even internalizes as some sort of actual uh, important thing that he's saying. It's just it's a disclaimer he's legally supposed to give, you know, this is, this is part of being the doctor is this is the legal boilerplate, you know, uh, don't do this anymore. I, I don't, uh, you know, drugs are illegal. So stop. And then he goes home and does drugs. <laughs> well, I mean, he smokes uh, pot. He smokes weed. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> it's, it's much less dangerous, but nevertheless, he immediately goes home and uses an illegal substance. Yeah, yeah, it, it did feel like the whole thing that he was saying is, okay, so this is what I say when the drug overdose happens. Yeah. This is what I say when the person's parent passes away. This is what I say when – and when he, he's in a situation that he doesn't have a pre-prepped saying for, he, uh, he or, slows down. 
or or not not even just that it's something that he hasn't prepped for. It's that people don't react in the way he expects people to because people are messy and strange and they don't mm-hmm. react in the robotic way he wants them to. Yeah, uh, definitely that. And he's he's always just like, okay, you're reacting this way to this thing and don't quite know how to deal with that. So I'll just say the next thing on my script and hope that works. Right. And as we'll soon find after this next scene where he's smoking weed with his wife, it all becomes sexual. Like every single thing that he encounters from this point forward becomes weirdly sexual and he doesn't know how to deal with it at all. Because the thing with so they're they're smoking weed and they get into a fight and she's kind of having fun with it and he is not. (laughs) Yeah, um, I was trying to figure out what she's actually fighting about, because the first time I watched it, I was like, wow, lady, you keep moving the goalposts. Get off this guy's case. And the second time I watched it, I was like, no, she's She's absolutely right. But she's she's messing with him. She is moving the goalposts, but she's also like, I think she just wants him to admit that he has sexual desires and he won't. Well, because he, he doesn't. doesn't. So she's wrong. But I, I, I feel like it's more than that. I, I think it's her just trying to make him realize that sexual desires exist because it just seems like a complete mystery to him. And at first she's like, Come on, admit it. You're you're horny for those girls. You you were interested in them. And she she thinks she's kind of playing with him. And it's like, no, I don't even understand what you're talking about. That's crazy. He's, yeah, he's shocked and offended. Yeah, he's like, of course not. You're my wife, and there's no one but you for me. Because he has no jealousy. He's mm-hmm. not interested in that. His jealousy is not for sex. His jealousy is for status. He wants to climb through higher echelons of society. It doesn't really matter about the sex. And the sex is weird and uncomfortable for him because sex leads to all sorts of problems that he knows about as a doctor. Okay, yeah, okay. That makes sense, too. Um, Especially since the kind of calls he's going to make, he would would really know about all the uh, dangers of sex. Exactly. And not to mention the much later cold water thrown upon uh, his uh, loins when he re-encounters or he he returns to the sex worker's apartment much later on. But we'll obviously have to get to that. Yeah, yeah. Um, It's a very specific uh, 90s consequence. mm, Oh, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Something, obviously, that would not have been present in the original book because it wasn't a thing back then. The the fight that they have, it's my least favorite point in the movie. Like, it's not that it's well, it's not that it's badly acted or anything. It's just, it's like, I hate listening to people. I I hate marital arguments in movies. There's such a pain. That's true. And she's, she's not making it easy. No, she is clearly just needling him to mess with him. And he's stoned and it is just blowing his goddamn mind. Yeah, yeah. So it all starts like kind of like I didn't realize that this was going to turn into a fight at first because the way she says it is like she's kind of like she's just playfully like saying, hey, those girls at the party, did you by any chance Yeah. them? Right, because he disappeared into a back room to yeah. deal with the Mandy thing. But I, 
yeah, it, it's interesting. She's playful about it because, you know, she was flirting with this guy and she's like, oh, we can both have some fun with our, you know, mutual desires. And then she realizes he just doesn't have any. Yeah. See, at first I was thinking like, hey, let just let them be polyamorous. But that's not what the problem is here. No, no, he's, <laughs> he's not concerned about that at all. Yeah. I was going to say she starts talking about this uh, vacation that they took a year or two before where there was this dude that she just thought was really hot. <laughs> yeah. But the intensity that she tells this story is yeah. like, well, again, important context is that she's really stoned. <laughs> True. <laughs> so she's remembering it with this really great intensity as well. And she's kind of laughing and she's living in the moment and she doesn't realize that she's blowing his mind. Yeah. She's just saying like, Hey, I found this guy. He was really hot, but I know that if he wanted me to, I would have, I would have fucked him. I would have just thrown you and all that other shit away. And I would have fucked him. Right. She was already like they already had the kid at that point. He's like, yeah, yeah, I would have just left you and the kid. Uh, it, it's something I fantasized about all night long. Uh, but, you know, ultimately I didn't. And he's really disturbed by that. It's like, I, I, I never even imagined. Yeah, it's like a good 30 seconds. He's just frozen in place. The phone is ringing. He's ignoring it. I was just watching this. And I'm like, ah, Tom Cruise.exe has stopped working and needs to be shut down. Yeah, and it's it's interesting because he has this whole thing. Uh, they, they like in leading up to it, they're talking about him being a doctor and seeing lots of people naked, and it's the standard doctor thing. It's like, well, no, of course that isn't sexual because it's my fucking job. Yeah, yeah, and it's like, first of all, I happen to be a doctor, and she throws up her <laughs> yeah, arms. I know, I know. <laughs> and I'm just imagining her thinking like, okay, I know you're a doctor. Please don't take out the card. I think part of it, though, is uh, I, I mean, I, I'm sort of on his side through most of this fight in a weird sort of way, because uh, the the thing about the, the doctor thing, it's like, yeah, he's doctor. It really isn't sexual for him. And for her to, like, claim that it's sexual is like, what are you talking about? Do you understand mm. me at all? And he doesn't find it amusing either that she thinks that like, Oh, you know, I, I bet your patients are horny for you. And it's like, I don't want to think about that. It's my job. <laughs> I yeah. really don't like following this thread. And she's like, Oh, I, I bet they are. And honestly, I think she's completely right there. Yeah. Like, I, I think oh. that's something he is overlooking that had never occurred to him. That is totally true. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Like we see him actually doing what she says uh, right. later on in, in a montage. She's like he's examining this woman who's uh, who's naked from the waist up mm. and, you know, fondling. Not Sorry, not fondling, not fondling. He's examining her breasts and, you know, it's very clinical. And there's hints that she might be into it. Right. Uh, there, there's there's. A, a clear hint that you know I mean, he's fucking tom cruise that that's the the a key element of this whole movie is that they cast tom cruise so he's this otherworldly beautiful man and it's it's something that he has to realize himself yeah yeah because like an important thing about the fight is he says to her no she's not thinking about how hot i am if for no other reason than because women don't think that way 
<laughs> that's the stupidest thing he says in the entire movie and he says some stupid stuff yeah and well this is where she bursts out laughing <laughs> yeah she's completely right <laughs> and it's like women don't think that way well here's a story about this time that i thought that way so hard i was gonna leave you and yeah and so they they have the whole thing and then the phone's ringing and it turns out this patient has died some nearby dude so he has to go make a, a house call dick laurentis is dead <laughs> dick laurent is dead like, that's it uh i cannot remember who this guy is lou uh, nathanson lou nathanson, nathanson. Yeah. yeah uh and and he he goes to the apartment and the daughter introduces <laughs> another wrinkle he it, it, too rapidly like he's probably going out there still stoned Mm-hmm. And he shows up at this house call and she needs comforting of a bedside manner. And it's not something that he's good at. Yeah, he, he like sits, sits down in the chair, but in a very aggressive posture, your father would have been very proud of you. <laughs> well, it's that Tom Cruise energy. He brings this weird intensity to everything he does. Yeah, yeah. He, he's like super intense about it. She is clearly putting on an act and like, she's obviously into him from moment go she's like oh tom cruise though and she's slowly slowly rolling out to him that she's interested in him and it takes a long time for the light to go on in his head even though he's just been talking about it well the light doesn't go on until he or until she goes and kisses him yeah, like, even though she's you. saying all the, like she's saying to him directly is like, I, I don't think you realize how much I'm extremely hot for you. Like, I, I it's just like it's all I think about. He's like, that's crazy. You, you're you're just making that up. You're just having fun with me. Come on. <laughs> you don't know what you're talking about. Uh, you're, you're just troubled right now because your dad's dead or whatever. But- yeah. Women don't think like this. It's he, he just it's like I I've never even talked to you about literally any other topic than your dying father. What are you talking about? Are you insane? But yeah. it's it's this thing that he just does not get sexual desire. It's the underlining of like, oh yeah, no, it's been completely going over his head day to day. Mm-hmm. But now he can't overlook it. Like she starts kissing him and tries to seduce him. It's like, it's okay. I'm going to leave my fiance for you. We'll run away together. And it's like, what? What? No, shut up. Shut up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, no, no. You should go with your fiance. Michigan's nice this time of year. Yeah. You, you feel like he's going to go into a Charlie Day sort of thing or Charlie Kelly. It's like, shut <laughs> up. Shut up. I need to think. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, he is saved by having to confront this uh, aggressive sexuality by the girl's boyfriend showing up. Yeah, the fiance turns up mm-hmm. uh, and he's like, uh, what's going on here? And like, oh, nothing, nothing at all. I'm I'm just I was just leaving. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But she's given him much to think about, just like Alice has. Mm-hmm. So this is the point I feel where. All reality becomes questionable. At this point is where we enter the dream state. Potentially. If we if we subscribe to the dream theory, then yes, right. we are right around here. Yeah, I, I would say this is probably where 
the, the segment that could potentially be considered dream is because it's where he goes out and he first meets a sex worker and he sort of has he, he's taken in these two strong expressions of female sexuality and is processing them and directly encounters a sex worker who yeah. is also obviously interested in him specifically and not just like as a sex worker he's like this seems like a good deal for me oh yeah and it's like do you want to come inside have a little fun come inside have a little fun what are you talking, <laughs> you talking about? about totally what does oblivious. that mean sex worker i've never even heard of it she clearly spies him as like yeah this guy has money and is clean and seems like just uh, a real safe trick (laughs) it's like oh this is perfect (laughs) he's so awkward when they get into the house um it's like oh wow this is cozy <laughs> i've never been in such a small home before <laughs> yeah that's exactly what i'm thinking <laughs> i'm like thinking he didn't know that houses could be this small which is crazy because he lives in new york yeah but you know he <laughs> he doesn't really go into the normal people apartments no yeah totally he is exclusively in an upper class milieu Mm-hmm. And yeah, he's, he's just being really awkward about it. He's like, so do we want to talk about money? How much does this normally cost? Yeah, he's uh, he's play acting. It's like, well, I guess I got to, you know, go through the basic script that one would have in this sort of situation. Um, I haven't written the script out, but I can maybe improv it. Yeah, it's like, I, I think I've seen movies. I sort of understand <laughs> how this sort of thing works. Like, so what would the money be like in... I, I think she says something like four hundred and fifty dollars or three hundred and fifty. Uh, it's a hundred and fifty. One hundred and fifty. Uh, it depends. He's like, oh yeah, <laughs> that's fine. He's like, oh yeah, I've got that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. She's like, it depends on what you want to do, and he's like, what do you recommend? She what just, do you recommend? <laughs> and she's just like, oh my god, let me. Like do she's this. a waitress. <laughs> it's like, oh well, what's your favorite dish? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's <laughs> and then we smash cut to Nicole Kidman just staying up in the kitchen eating Oreos and watching TV. You're like, oh, I guess he's not coming back to have sex with me. I, I thought I made myself pretty clear, but all right. <laughs> yeah, so, so we cut back to the apartment and he gets a phone call, you know, once again. From rescued from Yeah. Once again, somewhat rescued from having to deal with the uh, implications of a, of another woman's sexuality. Yeah, so, he, he always is essentially saved from being involved in any sexual situation. There is no point at which he is involved in one in this movie. No, no. Even he, though he yeah. is constantly trying to get involved in places of sexuality, he is never interested in the act. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, yeah, the only sexual thing that we ever see him actually do is he makes out with Alice after the first party. Right. Yeah. And, and yeah, they're, they're naked. They're smoking weed. They're going to have sex, but then, you know, she gets in a fight with him and he, yeah. it, it ruins his <laughs> <Just> day. <laughs> ruins his day and possibly life. Yeah. Yeah. He's all like, Oh, I think I need to go. And the line that she says here is like, is that Mrs. Dr. Bill? Yeah. And we never he no. He gave his name doctor as Doctor uh, uh, Bill. Bill. Doctor Bill. 
I, I like that he gave the name Dr. Bill because it's <laughs> his his doctor bills like his 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 name is Bill like yeah, his his William Bill. Hartford. But yeah, Dr. Bill, uh, Dr. Bill. Yeah. And of course, he, he couldn't he could not leave the fact that he was a doctor out of it. No, he has to tell her she needs to know. I don't think he shows her the ID, but he definitely shows he the roommate sh- the ID the next time he shows yeah, up Yeah, he doesn't there. show the ID here. Um, but yeah, he d- he makes sure that she knows he's a doctor. Yeah, like, and he makes sure she knows that the money is nothing to him, and he gives her the money. Yeah, even he though gives they her the money it. anyway. She's like, are you sure? And he's like, yeah. And she's like, okay. I did my social thing by saying, are you sure? Yeah. So next he goes to find Nick's jazz club. Well, I think he's just wandering aimlessly and he ends up there. Okay. Uh, That's that's how I kind of read it, because he doesn't go straight home, even though and he lies to Kidman saying, like, oh, no, I'm still at the widow's thing or not. the You know, the dead guy. Yeah. Uh, Well, he he doesn't really say what he's dealing with, just like, oh, there's a case that needs my attention. I'm going to be a while. Doesn't really give much detail because he knows that he can. Yeah, just waiting on more family members to show up. This is a normal thing that happens. Right. And he he ends up at the the club, Nick Nightingale's Nightingale's club, uh, where he's just finished playing. Yeah, yeah, he gets there like right at the end uh, and he's like, and they're talking about their, you know, their respective work, mostly Nick's work. And yeah. he's like, hey, well, actually, I got to believe it or not, I got another gig after this. I don't even know where the address is. Right, because like, he leaves to go take a call and the guy gives him a password. He yeah, writes it yeah. on a piece of paper, Fidelio. Fidelio. And like at first, Tom Cruise doesn't believe him. It's like <laughs> you're doing like a secret blindfold piano thing. Uh, tell me more. Really can't tell you more. I got a uh, non-disclosure agreement, you know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but but you know, Cruz just keeps pushing and pushing. He's like, hey, I saw you write down the password. I know the password. You might as well just give me the address at this point. He's like, come on, they they won't know that I got it from you. Which <laughs> well, what's the worst that could possibly happen? I mean, it's it's dumb on a couple levels because. How does he know that there isn't like a separate password for staff? <laughs> that that would be the first thing I would consider is like, what if they give a different password for the people who are there to do work behind the scenes versus the people who are attending as guests? That is a very good point that neither of them think of. <laughs> no, it just doesn't come up. But uh, th- that that would be the first worry I would have. But ultimately, it. <laughs> his awkwardness <laughs> is going to give him away no matter what <laughs> oh yeah 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 i guess nick's like well hey whatever I, i'll give you the password because there's or the address because there's no way in hell you're going to be able to get in without a costume yeah you need a costume and a mask you and you got to be in a tuxedo yeah and you're not going to be able to get that at two in the morning even though he's already unbelievably well dressed like he's in a sharp suit Sure, but not well dressed enough. Yeah, he's he's not upper echelon well dressed. He's not. No. I I own an island well dressed. <laughs> but Tom Cruise, being a doctor, knows a guy. Oh, of course, he knows a guy who owns a costume shop. He yeah. thought he did. <laughs> he knows a guy who owned a costume shop. 
yeah, he goes to the costume shop and he rings the bell and the owner is not the guy he thought he was. Yeah, but he's like, okay, well, all right. All right, but like, listen, I really am his doctor. Here's proof. <laughs> yeah, first time. Here's the first time he takes out the, the doctor card. It's like, this is my card from the uh, the medical board that proves I'm a doctor. And the guy's like, okay, so you're a doctor. Okay, goodbye. I yeah. I tell Mr. What's so-and-so that you were calling by if I ever see him. It's like, no, 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 you got to let me in. I need a costume right now. I'll pay you a hundred bucks over the ticket price. Pfft, no. That's... It's, see, it's weird because I feel like this guy would take the money. I think maybe he just doesn't want to because he knows something's going on in the shop and that he doesn't really want to go in there right now. Yeah. Because well, something he... ends up being going on in the shop. Yes, uh, he he agrees when he raises the price to 200 and yeah. I've actually kept track of how much he spends on this day. He's spending just tons of money and he can afford to like, that's, that's the big thing is like he can peel off bill after bill. It's his superpower. Uh, he has money, <laughs> but I, Milich, uh, the, the guy who runs the costume shop uh, played by Raid Serbegida. Very funny character. Like, th this is a big <laughs> character who feels like he's coming from a completely different movie. Oh, yeah. Like, th this whole sequence feels so out of place. I'm just like, what the fuck is this costume shop? It's a whole weird detour because uh, they, they, he ultimately talks him in and he goes through it and just the. The place is sketchy from the beginning. Like, I've never it's been in like, a costume shop where you have to go through a security check to get security in. Security check. Like what you'd have going into a prison. Like this big caged box that you have to go through. Yeah, it's weird. Oh, you never can be too careful, eh? <laughs> I mean, it must be a nasty part of town. Oh, well, it must be, yeah. Um, so, yeah, they're talking about the costume. And he just sees that there's like all this he's there was something going on and he hears a noise and then he goes into his office and he uh moves aside some coats in a closet and there's this japanese guy in a speedo with like a silly wig there standing there it's like what are you doing and then he like reaches behind the couch and pulls out another one it's like like this feels like a cartoon he's just pulling, oh yeah it's, uh, it's it's completely absurd, and it's, it feels a lot like why maybe he did not want Tom Cruise to come in there. That, like, I kind of know this thing's going on here, but uh, I now have to perform for this man that I didn't know this thing was going on here. Right. Oh. Because he's certainly fine with it when we see him again. Yes. Well, they came to a different arrangement. Mm -hmm. in, so, in the like, time between the, the key thing here is that his 15 year old daughter is uh there in the uh room with the guys that yes you know, and having like, having some sort of sexual encounter yeah yeah some like some like freaky one no a doubt. weird one yeah and th this is like purely for cruz in in this state that he's in it's like i can't <laughs> yeah. escape it it's everywhere it's totally oppressive just sex everywhere Oh, yeah, because when Millich is freaking out, the daughter runs out and, like, gets behind Tom Cruise, but she's, like, whispering in his ear seductively. Well, she, like, puts her arms around him to hide behind him because, again, I'm like, oh, wait, hot guy, too. This is kind of great. Yeah. Uh, just, you know, a, an extra bonus to this whole weird play acting situation that everyone's in. 
he's the only so, one who's not play acting. Yeah, no. So what I found odd the first time I watched it was that he happened to get a cape and a mask that matches everybody else's from this random costume shop. So there's a few ways that this could be the case. One, it could be all a dream. So, you know, that just solves it. Mm. The other, and here's where it gets a little dark. She, cause she whispers to him what kind of cape and mask to get uh, just before she leaves. Does she know about this party? Does I she mean, seems, go to some of these? It seems perfectly reasonable that uh, he would have sold her to parties like this. It seems like it's a sort of party that he sells these things for in the first place. Like, again, just the fact that this guy comes here looking for this costume this night and he's up. He's obviously not asleep. He hasn't been woken up. It doesn't look like he slept in 55 years. The guy looks oh, like true. a ghoul. Uh, and... He's obviously not really that put out, but when he sees that the guy can just like peel Bill off after one after another, it's like, well, this guy's high society enough that if I give him this stuff and he goes there, I don't know, maybe it's okay. Maybe he just gets dealt with it. I don't really need to deal with it either way. Yeah, yeah, that was actually my third thing. Like maybe this guy is the one who sold all the costumes to all the guys. I would say he's probably just one of many people, you know? there's a lot of people there and they're all very rich. They're probably not all coming from New York, but as one of the New York vendors with a really secure, uh, creepy sex dungeon costume shop, he seems like maybe a kind of guy that these people might be going to. Yeah. Yeah. I do think that somehow, whether it's through dream or not, Tom Cruise has wandered into a shop that's somehow connected to the Stonecutters sex party. Yeah. Um, so every time he's in a taxi in between, like, going from place to place, he's always stewing. And he's always got this, like, one image of Nicole Kidman having sex with this pilot. But it's, like, so – I feel like it's intentionally unimaginative. There's not much to it, but we, we see it very frequently. It's kind of the main thing we see Nicole Kidman doing the movie is these imagined flashbacks of – clothed sex (laughs) yeah yeah she's always clothed the guy has always got clothes on it's just like how a kid imagines sex being yeah it's it's uh just again it's his fabrication but he doesn't have a lot of imagination for it because he doesn't he's not interested in it he's not interested in it as a fantasy and like him going to this sex party he isn't interested in the sex he's interested in the wealth he's interested in getting into this layer of society Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but he does become jealous of kidman but because of the supposed like because of the pilot but yeah i don't think it's a sexual jealousy i think it's more of but you're my wife though you're supposed to be faithful to me well, it's weird. We'll we'll have to get to it when when she actually talks to him about it after the the party because there's some weird energy to the the next part when she's talking about her dream. Mm-hmm. But so first they, he goes out to the weird mansion in the country and <laughs> first he's got to play a little power move with the taxi oh driver. Oh my god. So yeah, so the the cab fare is 80 bucks. He's like, "Okay, well if you stay here, he's like I said I'd give you 50 over the meter, right? So he pulls out a $50 bill, rips it in half, and I'm just laughing my ass off. It's because he's like, okay, here, 
here you go. Uh, let's make it a hundred. And if you leave the meter running, I'll give you the rest when I get out. Like I'll give you the other just, half of the fifty. And it's just like it's such a like it's it's him trying to control the situation one last time before he goes into this party where he has no control. And also just it's such a dick move. It's such as like him thinking he's really cool. Yeah, it, it's definitely um, the oh, I should do this, and this guy's gonna think I'm so cool. But it feels like, again like something he's seen in a movie, like like a child's idea of what's a really cool way to show your status. Yeah, but th- that's also what you get from these kind of guys. Well, uh, that's very, true. Very childish uh, status stuff. So, I. <laughs> I love when he he gets out and he talks to the people guarding the gate. And he's like, uh-huh, so I guess you'll want the password then. <laughs> and then there's like, well, if you say so, sir. Like, uh, all right. Yeah, go ahead and give us the password. It's uh, quite a bit like when he talks to Domino, the the sex worker, when he goes inside, is like, well, I guess we should be speaking about the money. It's like, I know how the script works here. This is the sort <laughs> of thing you say. And it's like, well, I have this password that I'm supposed to give. And like, here's the password, gentlemen. <laughs> like, it's like, okay, all right, well, dude. we'll drive you up to the mansion. Yeah, and like, I guess we'll we'll have a car run you up there. And at this point, he's already given himself up. He just has no clue. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and you know that the uh, the one guard just went up to the taxi guy and said, hey, what's that guy's name? <laughs> and you know that the taxi guy knows it because Cruz showed him his doctor card. Right, right, definitely. <laughs> and And he goes up to the place. He still has not put on his mask or cloak until... No. He gets inside. <laughs> Many people have already seen him. But when he goes in, it's this like crazy, um, like a stonemason's thing. I think. Right. It's it's this huge mansion and it's just full of people in robes with chanting music going on that sounds kind of vaguely satanic and isolated pockets of people having sex wearing masks uh 69ing wearing masks which oh, seems yes. impossible and <laughs> they well you know they i'm sure they have special 69 masks i guess it's it's more performative than it's sexual it's oh, it's more sure. about the perversion than uh the actual sexuality or looking at it from the dream perspective it's his vision of a great big debauched rich people party involving sex where mm-hmm. everyone's wearing these masks and robes and all of the actual sexual activity is kind of buffered by masks and robes like there, there's no real uh, actual direct sexual contact everyone's just kind of performing sexually like that that seems like his vision of a huge debauched sex party could be um but there is also the the whole thing about like hey look how rich i am look what i can make these two people do which is definitely a thing rich people do oh sure it's not an unconvincing uh big rich people sex party either yeah so there's Um, there's this one lady who immediately is like you don't belong here you should leave (laughs) oh yeah featherhead uh she's got like this she's got the biggest mask so, you know, she's the most important. She's not the most important, but no. you know, she's, but she like, yeah, she says to him, is like, 
what are you doing here? You're in danger. You obviously don't belong here. He's just like, I think you have me mistaken for someone else. It's like, <laughs> it's like, no, dude, you have such weird energy here. You obviously don't belong here. You're lurking in corners. You're just like wandering in and out of rooms. Nobody else is acting like you. Yeah. When they're doing their big sex thing on the table, you're standing like everyone else is like off to the side watching. You're standing in front of two guys blocking their view. Well, of course, in the theatrical version, that would have looked perfectly in place. Oh, added in. Yeah, that's funny. But uh, yeah, she she immediately picks him up as obviously not belonging. And we see other people looking and seeing him not belonging. And one of them may be Ziegler. I do think that the plague mask guy, well, not quite plague mask, but beak tricorn mask guy who nods at him, that's got to be Ziggler. I mean, it doesn't have to be, but it has to be. I think theoretically it could be him or it could just be some other guy is Ziggler and that's just the guy whose face he noticed is the guy in you know, because it's it, it's sort of a mask of like a founding father thing. Like like you said, the tricorner hat with uh, sort of a it's, it's like a F- Benjamin Franklin mask or something. Oh, the masks are so good. All Very well them. done. Yeah. And his is they, amazing. His mask is I want actually. Yeah, I wanted to talk about it because he's got like these huge eye holes, but like a stone face mouth expression. So. But because Tom Cruise's eyes do so much work in this scene, it feels like the mask is expressing. Yeah, he's got those Disney princess eyes. It's uh, it's very <laughs> striking. Too. And it's, it's just him in this mask standing at the verge of all these sex acts with just his eyes so huge in the mask because it's perfectly cut to be just the eyes and nothing else. So you just mm-hmm. look at him and it's like he is in pure terror and trying to hide it everywhere he goes in this place. <laughs> yeah. So he, he gets separated from Featherhead uh, a few times and like goes wandering and she finds him again after uh, Tricorn actually sends one of her minions to, uh, lure him to someplace more private we don't find out what the implications of that are but because no, Featherhead it, saves him and and it like it, it may have had something to do with Ziegler or it may have been completely unrelated it could have been just someone trying to have sex with him yeah <laughs> but I I like that uh somewhere in here we also hear the music stop and we see uh Nick being led out <laughs> yes that's we like a, a long shot of him being escorted out of the building he's like what's going on guys (laughs) i have this theory that it's like okay well you are gonna have to leave the show but before you do uh we're doing this big performative huge staged thing and you need to intimidatingly play the piano whenever the leader talks yeah Uh, so the, the they they have spotted him obviously and they hustle him into the main chamber and i guess their leader guy Played by Leon Vitali, who was uh, uh, Kubrick's personal assistant all the way back oh. to Barry Lyndon. Oh, OK, cool. Like he was an actor in Barry Lyndon. And then he was so impressed with working with Kubrick, he just became his personal assistant and stopped acting. Oh, wow. But in this one, he's the he's the big major domo. He's the guy who gets to threaten the shit out of Cruz. Yeah. And he does it like in the most the most super villainy way it's like he's playing with him oh he's so playing with him every time he talks the score does like these intimidating piano strikes which i like to pretend is nick nightingale even though he's already been let out 
I can't remember exactly what it is, but it is a famous classical piece that okay. plays a lot through the rest of the movie. Like we, we get this sort of piece echoing through pretty much all of his terror moments in the rest of the movie. Mm-hmm. Like every time he's every time they're, they start closing in on him, like when he notices that he's being watched mm-hmm. as the guy is like super obviously watching him. Yeah. So the. The dude, uh, I, I, the character is Hugo, who is, you know, yelling at him and it's like, oh, hey, the leader? yeah, the leader guy. So, yeah, the, it's like, what's the second password? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like, so I just need the password. Oh, it's Fidelio. That is the password for admittance. But what is the password for the house? I seem to have Gotten it. Oh, this will get me out of this. This is the right thing to say here, right? Oh, uh, yeah. And they're, obviously, he's immediately revealed. I mean, he was already revealed. They knew. Oh, yeah. This feels like another ceremony. This feels like another uh, layer to the thing where this is what they love to do is to get someone <laughs> in and just scare the shit out of them. Oh, yeah, for sure. Commands him to remove his mask. And when he takes it off, I'm just imagining Sidney uh, Pollock wherever he is in the audience being like fuck well I'm he's so fucked if he spotted him before i think he already knew that it was him because he's so obvious like his body language <laughs> is so weird but they're also like and you're gonna take off all of your clothes now and then someone he comes in and interrupts he's just he, well doesn't interrupt right away he he squirms a bit he's like yeah all my clothes gentlemen come on that's that's a that's a sex thing. Like you you don't understand. I'm also very rich. I I may not be as rich as you gentlemen, but I can show you my wallet and my doctor's card. Here's my card but, that has my name on it. But uh, a woman comes in. Uh, I guess it is Mandy at this point. It is it's Mandy. Unclear whether who among them was Mandy earlier. Uh, well, it's it's Featherhead. It's the mask with the big feathers. The one who's been trying to get him out of here. I guess so. Although it's weird because I think they have someone else play her at different times, like intentionally. Oh, interesting. But anyway, like she says that she will redeem him. Do you know what you're taking upon yourself? Yes, Uh, I do. And I'm prepared. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, And this is the big questionable thing, whether they kill her or whether nothing much really happens beyond what she would normally have done as Sidney Pollack will later explain. What do you think? So, yeah. So we, we find out later that she dies presumably from an overdose, uh, in a hotel room, uh, like the next day or the day after. No, the same night. Oh yeah. Right. The same night. This this only takes place over one day. (laughs) Right. Right. Two days. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, and, and Sidney Pollock ends up telling Tom Cruise, like, hey, no, she just overdosed normally. We didn't kill her. Yeah, like, remember when she overdosed at my house that other time when you met her? That happened again. <laughs> so, I really don't think that they killed her. I agree. Uh, that's, because that's, that's totally my read. Because why? You don't need that heat. There's, there's totally is... no reason for it. And it's it's like... If this is a big sex party, you know what you do to punish someone? You have a bunch of sex. Like, you do sexual punishment. That's kind of inherent to the whole weird bondage party thing. And that's what Sidney Pollock says. is like, 
You know what happened after she left? The same thing that happens anytime she's there. They all fucked her brains out. That's what she's there for. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, uh, and the overdose is actually a coincidence, I think. I agree. I, I think that's most likely. Although, obviously, the threat hanging over and his central paranoia that will drive the rest of the plot is him thinking that they killed her. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Which and, is viable. Well, they, he also thinks that they killed Nick. Right. Although, ultimately, he doesn't even follow up on the Nick thing when they say, no, no, we just sent him home. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, well, I don't need to phone his house or anything. He's probably fine. Nick, whatever. <laughs> He's not even a doctor. Because I, I, I can't remember who it is that talks to him about Nick. It's, we're, we're getting a little bit ahead because we haven't talked about that's, Alan Cumming talking to him about Nick. But that's Ziggler. Said, oh, yeah, it's Ziggler who says, like, Ah, we roughed him up a little bit, and like, because uh, Cumming told him that he had a bruise on his face. It's like, yeah, so we roughed him up a little bit. It's, it's what he deserved, the jerk. <laughs> yeah, he made me look like an asshole in front of all these guys. Yeah, like I recommended this dude, and this is how he repays me. That stinks. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So yeah, I, I don't, I don't think that they killed. I don't think they actually killed these guys, but. They really tried to make it look like they did, which kind of was the wrong idea because they wanted to scare Tom Cruise, but he's too stupid to be scared. Well, it's fun. I feel like it's part of the whole sex game. Is that like, oh, we get to scare this guy too. That's that's like a whole extra layer to the sex party. Probably like a common thing that they do. You know, there there are going to be leaks for these sort of things, and you probably have. A specific protocol for dealing with it that it's exactly this mm-hmm. it's like oh someone needs to redeem him <laughs> like okay step up and redeem him yeah but you know it gets gets a little more serious as he becomes more serious in his useless inquiries yeah so he comes home and <laughs> alice is having her sex dream she's like yeah, having she's this having really weird sex, sex dream so she's laughing in her sleep but sounds like she's having a great time and he wakes she's her up. having fun she and having she's fun. so th- this is the weirdest thing because it's not just that she has a sexual fantasy her main fantasy isn't the sex it's humiliating bill mm-hmm. it's laughing at bill while she's having sex with other dudes lots of other dudes yeah, yeah, like when she's telling about the dream, she's like, and the pilot was there and there were all these other guys and I just fucked them. I fucked them all. And I- she's crying like she's mm-hmm. horrified by it happening or she's performatively upset about it. But she seemed to be having a lot of fun in the dream. And again, I think that's also partially us watching it through his eyes. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. But, you know, her fantasy is his humiliation. So that kind of really feeds into his mind state for the rest of like for the next day of his weird sex odyssey. Well, the thing about her dream is like it's so close to where he just was that I spent Mm -hmm. a good part of the movie thinking that maybe she was there, too. That is another popular theory that she's secretly someone at the party and. It's totally a possibility because, you know, all of these people are in masks. Who knows? Yeah. And maybe when she phoned him uh, when he was at the sex worker's house, maybe he just imagined her in the kitchen eating Oreos. Right. You know, it's it's maybe totally a possibility. Was... I don't think so. 
I don't think I, so either. I, I think it's just one of the many mirrors because like at this point, the the narrative sort of folds back in on itself uh, where we've reached the center and he just returns to all of the different places that he's been in the movie where these sexual questions have arisen and answers are present for most of them. So here she was talking about her sex fantasy, which started off the whole thing. And here now she's had a dream and lived out the fantasy in a sense through her dream. Yeah, yeah. And um, it's it's the more full version of it where it's about his humiliation rather than being about her sex. So it's like him getting the worst part of it. <laughs> like, oh, that that's what this is. A, that's the end point of sexual desire is that it's also this competitive thing that makes me have to be subservient if uh, I'm not the, the top one. Like, oh, maybe this sucks. <laughs> yep. So next he goes to the hotel. He goes to the hotel, yeah. Nick's he hotel. Asks, or he goes to the the diner the next to the the oh, bar. Yeah, he goes he starts at the jazz club at ten in the morning and is surprised that Nick isn't there. And I'd like to imagine it's like the child thing where you think your te- you forget that your teachers have life outside school and you think they just live at the school. Right, because on the door, it has the hours he plays, and it's like yeah. evening hours, obviously. Yeah, it's like, course. oh, does he does he live nearby? And they're like, I don't know, man. Yeah, <laughs> he yeah, works he, here. Yeah, he, so he goes to the diner next door and starts asking, he's like, you know the Nick Nightingale guy that plays next door? Do you, do you happen to know where he is? I was like, dude, well, I work at a diner. She does, but. She does. That's the funny thing is that she immediately knows. And is like, oh, yeah, I know that guy. He's probably in there all the time talking you know? about how he's a pianist and maybe <laughs> talking about how he plays these sex parties and stuff. I bet he's sleeping with the, the diner girl because she's I would say that's cute. likely, too. Yeah. she She's cute and she's done up nicer than a diner girl you would expect to be done up. And she is able to pass on to him what hotel he's staying at. And I love the other thing. I love the yeah, she knows where his hotel is. Like, why would you know that? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Like it's weird that he's asking her, but it's also weird that she knows. Yeah, it, it definitely suggests an amount of time spent in the diner or with the diner woman specifically on Nick's part. And but, you know, it totally makes sense that he would be cheating in this movie where uh, everyone has this sexual undercurrent except Tom Cruise. Mm-hmm. And of course, the way he gets the information, gets her to talk about it is with his doctor's card. Of course, he's got to show it. It's yeah, like, it's oh, like, OK, you know, I'm going to be perfectly honest with you. This is a medical matter. Yeah, I'm a doctor. Would you like to see my card? You'd like to see my card. <laughs> and she's just like, the look on her face is like, why is he showing me this card? Yeah, it is like, okay, cool. Well, I guess you're a doctor. Sure. So, like, I, I love the scene at the ho- at Nick's hotel with Alan Cumming as the desk clerk. The great Alan Cumming. He is so into Tom Cruise. <laughs> but also, like, so, well, I do got to protect the uh, integrity of my guests. And there's two scary guys. Yeah, but like the whole time you see him looking him up and down and licking his lips and like he <laughs> yep. it's a whole full ass performance for just this one scene. <laughs> and it's like in a few dollars more how everybody that he that they talk to has a face. 
Like, this is one of those faces. Like I said, when we were watching it and referring to this scene, like him as the desk clerk is quite a bit like the wife of the desk clerk in for a few dollars more. He has the same reaction. Uh, And just I, I, I like Cruz noticing that this guy is into him. Like he is reading it and he is uncomfortable about it. Mm-hmm. Like he's like, oh, I don't know how to react to this at all. And this is the first time that it's also unwelcome. Like all of the other ones is like, we'll see how this plays out. And here it's like, okay, well, I can get my information, but I, I'm not comfortable with this. Am I this hot? Am I hot to everyone? I don't know how to deal it's with like, this anymore. Do, do I attract the gays too? It's like, it seems like Does I attract that make me everyone. Gay? He's like, oh, there, there's there's too many questions I have right now, and I'm going to just follow the one about this potentially dead lady. Yeah, yeah. So he's asking about Nick, and the hotel guy's like, hey, you're not a cop, are you? He's like, no, I'm not. In fact, I can prove it. I, I happen to be a doctor. <laughs> he pulls out the doctor card. And, and he's like, like okay. ooh, doctor. Well, that's, that's great. I guess I can tell you. And it's like this whole dramatic retelling of the story it's not like oh yeah he came by there are these scary guys with him he got a bruise on his face no he's like he's making a he's telling a story yeah he, he's performing like everyone that tom cruise encounters is very performative mm-hmm. actually my theory is that he was told by the guy following tom cruise to tell this story this way and you know to scare him it could totally be, or it, it could also be that, like, he's kind of flirting with him. Oh, well, he's doing that on his own. <laughs> it's even it's a bit in of my both. <laughs> uh, but I, I think it's also true that Nick got punched in the face and that they hustled. Oh, for sure. <laughs> for sure. It's like, all right, you're going back to Seattle. But my gigs, you don't have gigs. Yeah, uh, those are all canceled, my dude. You're not coming back here. You've uh, killed the golden goose. It's like, yeah. ah, shit. You don't have gigs in New York anymore. Well, what about other clubs? No. 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 <laughs> you messed with the wrong You people. will never work in this town again. Yeah, you're blackballed. So next uh, he goes to the yeah. costume shop. <laughs> continuing yep. to retrace his steps backwards. And here we find that the daughter, the Asians, and Millage have come to a different understanding. Come to a different sort of agreement. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. So he's very troubled by it but again like it's it's the answer to the question of the night before and like oh that was all a performance for me and millich is like eh, you interested in my daughter you could work something yeah. out if you need anything doesn't have to be a costume yeah it's like oh i don't like this it's like every every situation that he's in this day is like oh i don't like this this sucks like yeah. right from him learning about uh her having this sexual fantasy about humiliating him everything from this point is like hmm maybe sex isn't so good i was really interested in it last night maybe opening doors but it just seems like it's a bad trip all around <laughs> So uh, we find out that because he lost the mask and had to pay for it, uh, the whole thing for the costume was $375, which means he has spent at least um, because so 150 for the sex worker works out to 180 for the cab because, you know, he ended up paying the cab what he said he would. Of course. Uh, He has the money. Mm -hmm. 
three seventy five for the costume. So he has paid seven hundred dollars for this ridiculous fever dream of a sex trip, which is probably not all that much to him. Probably not. It, um, it's really not a big deal to him. It's it's an amount that he could pay without worrying that his wife might find out about it even. Oh, uh, yeah, that's true, too. And he's always paying cash, too. He doesn't, he doesn't even put that shit on a card. Right. I, I he just guess has is, it in his wallet. Yeah, and I think that's also just more common in 1999, too, that, you know, you, you're probably going to have more uh, of a yeah, lot of cash. Right. The the card payment is much more modern. Yeah, credit credit cards existed back then, but it was, mm-hmm. it was more of a thing. Like, it, it was more of a big deal i guess because you yeah. had to like put it on that machine and then well and and it's the funny thing is that he's paying with cash everywhere which should theoretically make him anonymous but he's so carefully showing everyone exactly <laughs> who he is at yeah. every second uh, yeah so he goes to work yeah he can't stop thinking about it though so he cancels all of his appointments for the day and goes out to the fucking orgy place. He go, he gets his car and he drives his own car to the orgy mansion. And they're and waiting for him. They're like, oh, this fucking idiot. I knew he was going to show up. <laughs> they're waiting for him with a printed letter addressed to him. This a Bernie Sanders letter. looking guy. Yeah. And it's like, hey, stop looking into this. We don't want to have to deal with you anymore. He's like, hmm, this is your second. Wonder what that warning. means. <laughs> yeah, this is your second warning. I hope it is sufficient. And he's yeah, just I, like, I, how do they know my name? Well, yeah, I mean that's the funniest. Like, come on, dude, how have you not figured this out yet? But the <laughs> it, there, there's an early Harvey Birdman episode where he's it, it's a it's a Sopranos parody where Fred Flintstone is the head of the Sopranos crime family, the Flintstones. That sounds funny. And he keeps receiving these mafia threats that are sort of vaguely worded, and it just always goes in his head. It's like, huh, wonder what that means. (laughs) (laughs) That's that's kind of what I think of Bill through most of the sequences. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, it's definitely like that whenever sex comes up. Like, oh yeah, do you want to come in and have a little fun? Like, where does that mean? (laughs) (laughs) Or where are you two taking me to the end of the rainbow? (laughs) What does that mean? (laughs) Well, that's just wild. You crazy kids. I feel like that's how Tom Cruise himself in real life would react to this sort of situation, too. So it's just brilliant. That's the feeling I've been getting. I get about modern Tom Cruise. So, yeah, like you say, this is such brilliant casting because he turned into this guy. Yeah, I mean, it kind of feels like they saw that he was sort of this guy, and it's such a fascinating star performance that really uses the context of the star in an amazing way. Mm-hmm. So next, he calls Marion again. <laughs> He's like, well, "Yeah, the the girl whose uh, dad died the night before, and yeah, who the, said the one, she loved him." Yeah, and the the fiance answers because you know calling Marion at the fiance's house. He, 50% chance of getting the fiance. Well, I think he calls the the dad's place where everyone is gathered where Oh, you know, it's, that, it's the pl- the place he performed the house call that yeah. he's phoning. 
But the fiance answers rather than the girl. And I, I wonder what his thought was here. Was he thinking of going to have sex with her? Because it still seems like it's on his mind because he next goes to the sex worker's apartment. Yeah, he goes to the sex worker. But he's got a gift for her. Mm-hmm. Maybe he really was just like, hey, thank you for last night. I'm sorry it didn't work out. Here's because like that's what you do at parties when you're high society you give a mm-hmm. like the next day you show up you give a little gift to the person who threw the party right maybe it he's following be. that script it, it could be a thing like that right like it's weird to me because it seems like it's a loose end that he does need to close off just like all of these but it it sort of seems especially in conjunction with him next going to try and see the sex worker again it does seem like he's like thinking like well, maybe I can at least get some sex out of this and see how I feel about it. He he still seems to be playing out the road. Like, is this fulfilling? Will it be fulfilling for me? Oh, yeah. Especially since now I know that people die over sex. Yeah. I mean, it seems like, like really important to most people. Maybe I need to understand it better. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's a that's a valid interpretation. That would explain why he's going over there. Because, yeah, he when when he's unable to get in contact with Marion to kind of close off that loop, which is like, huh, I don't know how to deal with this. It's like, well, I mean, there was that sex worker and I I could very easily control that situation. That's one that I was like in perfect control. I was like, let's head back over there and play out that rope. Yeah, but she's not home and her roommate is. And that's why I think that maybe maybe you're right. And he was just trying to get sex to see what it's all about, because he's conscious of her flirting with him. And he even like undoes the first button of her blouse. Yeah, he plays into it. It's a really interesting scene where he actually is like, well, I mean, this is a place where I have control and I can kind of take a little bit more of an aggressive stance. This is he feels really comfortable there. Because he knows he's higher level. Well, this is what it's such a fascinating scene because she's into him. She gets it. But she's also got a bombshell of news to tell him. Yeah. Yeah. So after like a a bunch of back and forth, like, I don't know if I should tell you this or not. I don't know if this is a good idea. But you were just here last night and I don't know for sure that you did not have sex with her. So I kind of need to clear this up right away. Yeah. yeah. So, I, actually, yeah, that, that'd that be why she ended up doing it, I'm sure, because she's thinking about whether or not she wants to have sex with this guy. Yeah, I just like uh, this could be a danger. I, I do need to clear things up. So yeah. she reveals that uh, Domino, the, the sex worker from the night before, had just found out that morning that she's HIV positive. And he goes immediately like that into a condescending doctor script. I'm yeah. very, very sorry to hear that. Yeah, well, he, he kind of just he has to go into his defense mechanisms right away. Yeah. So he that goes home. Just, well, he starts to go home, but he's being very, very conspicuously followed. Right, right. Yeah. By uh, this guy who he reminds me of the guy from Abracadabra, the cop who's following the guy. Yeah. Um, but also kind of reminds me of Uncle Fester from the Adams family. He just seems like a generally suspicious looking dude who's very obvious as someone so following obvious. someone. Because and the he's... point is that Tom Cruise needs to know he's right. being followed. Yeah, he, he's not trying to be 
hidden, he's trying to scare him. Like all of this stuff is to scare Tom Cruise rather than uh, and a genuine threat on him because yeah. they're not going to kill a rich doctor. <laughs> they're, well, they're not going to do it if they don't have to. I mean, they don't have to. They know that they can scare him and they have so many resources with which to scare him. Uh, that's true. They can just because uh, like, they're not done. Yeah, they, they can just uh, subcontract all of it to Ziegler. It's like, well, you have to deal with it because you're you're the connection. So you just deal with this guy. We had our fun at the party already. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's that's probably what it is. It's like, OK, Ziegler, this guy keeps showing up. He's your problem. Yeah. Fucking deal with it. So he he happens upon the newspaper and he sees that. I, I don't think it says who she is, but it sounds like it's her and it does turn out to be Mandy. Uh, Amanda, which Mandy yeah. is short for. Right. Uh, yeah. Da, she's a beauty queen, like a supermodel or something uh, who died of a drug overdose in a hotel, which is weird that that would make the newspaper in new york city so beauty queen would mean that she was probably a pageant winner uh probably oh. like a miss new york kind of thing so it, it makes sense that that makes sense that, that makes sense up. yeah and, and uh, they would hire a miss new york for this party of course yeah, yeah absolutely so he being a doctor this is the one thing his doctor's uh badge really makes sense for him to be able to get into is he goes to the morgue and he's like i would like to examine the body yep so he does although it's also the stupidest place for him to be giving his id having just been followed by a weird guy and having gone to the place where he thinks this potential murder took place to like talk to them about it where they're like hey fuck off stop looking into this and it's like i'm just gonna give them my id it's it's uh, it's totally cool <laughs> yeah well i mean his id is like his key to everything <laughs> it is it, it, to him it is the magic key to higher society yeah yeah it's like yeah well not everyone can be a doctor in fact one of my friends is a guy who tried to be a doctor and couldn't that's why i'm special <laughs> poor nick so Oh, yeah, he, he examines the body and, he, you know, he doesn't really find anything unusual because that's not the sort of thing he does. We, I, I, I do think he's kind of a himbo doctor. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, well, I didn't even get the impression that he was looking for anything unusual. No. Because he just kind of like breaks down a little bit. He's more having a thing like, oh, my God, it's my fault you died, kind of. Right. He, he just is there to make sure that it is her after yeah. all uh but and then ziegler the, calls him yeah uh, what i like about this is like like he's having this revelation and he's like watching her imagining the uh her remembering her voice like trying to warn him and it just like would cut to the orderly like just kind of looking at his watch while the dramatic yeah. music is still playing it's like what are you doing what what is going on here <laughs> what is this are you her eh, whatever i'm i'm off in an hour i don't care but yeah he gets a call from ziegler yeah, and Ziegler is like, I mean, come on, dude, you need to stop looking into this. Uh, why are you not listening to people who are saying, stop it? <laughs> Ziegler, people have died. That woman was killed. And Ziegler's like, okay, listen, shut the fuck up. This whole thing was staged to scare you. And it sucks that she's dead, but you know what? We didn't have anything to do with it. Well, she OD'd like she always does. 
I I like that there's an implicit threat that he plays both sides of it all the way oh, through. Yes. It's it's a brilliant little performance from Pollock here because he he says we didn't have anything to do with it, but he's also like we're capable of doing this. Yeah, they're like yeah, if like, we wanted to, we could do this to you. Mm-hmm. Like, like how he deals with Nick too is like I. Uh, yeah, no, we just sent him on a plane back to Seattle. He deserves worse. Yeah, he deserved a lot worse. And they're like, yeah, of course we beat him up. We we punched him in the face. Screw that guy. What a dick. Uh, yeah, he but, made me look so bad. Yeah, and we'll we'll just do that because fuck that guy. Nick, what, what's he going to do? He's a fucking pianist. Screw that idiot. Yeah. Uh, like, you're a doctor. We're maybe not going to beat the shit out of you if you stop, but realize that we can. Yeah, and then like, what he ends up saying at the end is, uh, yes, the woman at the party was the same one who OD'd, but no, she just OD'd normally. But it's like, mm. hey, life goes on. It always does until it doesn't. But you know that, don't you? Yeah, it's it's an implicit threat, but it's also just like, hey, you know, uh, this is just high society shit and you are not a part of that and you cannot be a part of that. So maybe just stay the fuck out of that. Yeah, yeah. I'm telling you this as your friend, but also as somebody who would not hesitate to stab you in the back or in the yeah, front. Yeah, I, I, I am so far above you. Uh, you're my doctor. You, you are uh, someone who serves a function for me. But oh you my are god, not yeah, he's he's the help. Yeah, you're absolutely not a peer. I, I hire you to do things. You take care of problems for me. You're not my buddy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I think this this has got to be – no, this isn't what finally gets through to him. What gets through to him is when he gets home. Well, I think this is an extremely important step because it demolishes him. This, yes. this is what demolishes him in terms of his ego, his belief that he can socially climb. It's like, oh, yeah, no, th- this is actually totally impenetrable. Mm-hmm. And basically saying like, hey, stay in your lane. Yeah. You are you, going to crash. Yeah, you, you you can't get up here. You you can't walk with us. You're not in this. You you have to be born into this. Yeah, you might be a doctor, but you're still the help. Yeah. So he goes home and it's interesting that originally when we saw him put the costume away, we saw him very carefully hide it in a drawer. And yeah. then when he returned it, the mask was missing. It's like, huh, that's weird. So. She found it and took that's, the mask. That's what I thought on a second viewing. But the first time, I thought Sidney Pollock had somehow gotten in and put it in there. Oh, weird. No, I, I think she just found it and was like, oh, kinky. Oh. <laughs> I was like, oh, okay, maybe he's uh, trying some stuff. So she's put it next to her on the bed waiting for him to show up. It's like, okay, maybe he's trying something. Maybe he's Maybe I got through to him a little bit. But he just breaks down in tears when he sees it. And he's like, I'll tell you everything. Yeah, and it's it's a great cut forward to him getting home late. And then it's just like the early hours. And they've both been crying and arguing and talking about this whole situation. And they have to go Christmas shopping with their their little girl in the morning. It's like, oh, fuck. We got to get our shit together. This is... We've been talking about this all night and we're not getting anywhere. <laughs> yeah. So the Christmas shopping and he just says to her, he's like, 
what are we going to do? And she's like, well, what are we going to do? Uh, I wish I wrote it all down. She gives like this big speech. It's like first she starts out with, I think we need to be grateful that we have survived our respective adventures, whether they be in dream or reality. Right. So she kind of suggests that both his thing could be as much of a dream as hers is. And I think that's fair because ultimately, even though he's out in physical reality, theoretically doing those things, there's no active participation in anything. It's him actively courting temptation, but never giving into it, which in a way is much like what she did uh, with the the oh, um, uh, the soldier the or whatever. Yeah, the, or the, pilot. the dude. I, I think the, he's a Navy guy or something. Right. But, um, you know, that that's all she did as well. She was allowed herself to be tempted and to consider it. So they're kind of on an even gate here. It's just I, I do sort of feel like hers is a bit more weaponized because hers is about his humiliation, whereas his is just about what's this sex thing all about? <laughs> I don't get it. Yeah. The implication it implies that it could be a dream. It also implies it's like, we should just treat this like it's a crazy dream and go on with our lives. Yeah. Like, ultimately, let's just uh, forget all of this insane shit happened. Uh, it's clearly not good for you, dude. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then she's like, but there is something very important that we need to do as soon as possible. What's what? that? And the final line of the movie. Fuck. Fuck. <laughs> uh, the final line of Kubrick's career, the the ending of the Kubrick saga on film. This is a brilliant conclusion, I would have to say. Yeah, the, oh, the way she says it, too. Very matter of fact, like almost saying it to the camera, uh, it's really uh, putting the foot down on this is an adult film that is not anything like 90s erotic thrillers even though it's a 90s erotic thriller in its own peculiar way mm -hmm. yeah and then as soon as she says that yeah cut to credits yeah this is a smash cut the music starts really loud it's almost a comedic end yeah i mean this movie is hilarious it's very funny i i, I think it is underrepresented as a comedy i like most people describe it as a sexual thriller it's not that really it's really not all the sex is in the background well, it's and the not sex about is, that the, the sex is distinctly unsexy it's about the consequences of sex and sexual desire rather than sex being this sexy thing mm -hmm. even though it's sexually charged and obviously within the marriage it's about them celebrating their sexuality together by the end yeah yeah which i i gotta wonder like how often did they have sex prior to this i'm guessing not i mean I, at times i, I it, it seems like it's a thing that she is interested in and that it's sort of just a function he performs without really getting it. It, it doesn't seem like it's something he's totally unaware of because he's aware of people being sexual. It's just a thing that it doesn't seem like he ever considered before. Ever, something yeah. that it, it's such a non-issue in his life that it doesn't occur to him until she brings it up. It's like, oh, is that a thing that people think about? I mean, I just do it. 
Yeah, yeah. Like, I figure she's the one who always has to initiate, and he's just like, okay, we're having sex now. It's time, I guess. Yeah, I mean, it, it seems like it's much more of an interest to her. He doesn't have much of a response to the human body as a doctor, which is mm-hmm. as a doctor, <laughs> very important doctor. to everything he does. Please yeah. don't take out the card. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's a great fucking movie. Uh, obviously one that is not uh, as immediate as other Kubricks. Like, I get why it's a little harder for people to dig into. It it does feel very different from the other Kubricks I've seen. This doesn't feel like twenty or two thousand one Space Odyssey at all. It's got the visual panache, but I, I guess the thing is, it's also a movie about dealing with sexual urges and kind of looking at it in a societal sense and not being about just horniness and the film bro culture that really heavily identifies with Stanley Kubrick is maybe not the best at that either. So like mm. it's, it's the wrong crowd to be uh, <laughs> looking at this. Uh, so it, it kind of makes sense that it's one that sort of tends to get less respect or until recently had a lot less respect in his filmography. Yeah. Uh, the acting is wonderful. Nicole Kidman is freaking amazing uh tom cruise is so he's so much fun like watching watching his face as he reacts to things is he's perfect he's a natural and he goes through so many different expressions all the time And, and like watching him like shut down different times this movie's this movie's so good it's so it's so fun it's a good time. It's surprisingly funny and just it's so beautiful. We haven't really talked much about how the spaces are very liminal. It's all this Christmas in New York, all the Christmas lights everywhere, everywhere he goes. I love that aesthetic. Like especially anytime he comes in from this the the snowy outdoor scenes, there's just warm red, yellow and blue and white light everywhere and it's just like, "Oh, it's so comfy." Mm-hmm. I could just like live in every shot of this that isn't an orgy (laughs) (laughs) oh yeah i was when they were doing the like the stone cutters uh, ceremony thing i was like totally expecting now but you gotta do a christmas version of it with like bells and stuff (laughs) a very lost highway christmas Mm, yes indeed although i i do like the uh the minimalist piano that they do use for those scenes it's great i mean it's it's the stanley kubrick thing of choosing a really great classical piece that perfectly fits probably because it's a piece he's been listening to for 40 years and like Mm. i know exactly the one for this moment in the movie (laughs) so any last thoughts on eyes wide shut before we move on to our third and final section uh one thought one thought Mm. only Fuck. All right, on to part three. And we're back for part three, the watch stacks. Talking about some other movies we've watched in the past week. Decide on what to cover next week. So I watched 13 pictures this week that we've got to choose from. Oh, wow. That's, that's, a, that's a decent not number. Not the most, but it's a lot. Yeah, we've had some 20-ish ones during October, but that's October. 30. <laughs> yeah, I've been in there. So first up, we've got Moon of the Wolf. Is this, this a werewolf a, movie? 
it's a werewolf movie. It's kind of a just the basic werewolf movie. It's just told from a different perspective. Like, have you ever seen the classic Universal Monsters one? Oh, no, I haven't. Actually, I think uh, the only yeah, the only real werewolf movie I've seen out of like the famous ones is American Werewolf in London. Oh, okay, yeah. This is, I think, that, yeah, this predates American Werewolf in London. This is a 70s TV movie. Okay. So it's very much like the original Universal Monsters one, except like the, the classic Universal Monsters, you've got Lon Chaney Jr. as the Wolfman, and he's like this high society dude who, you know, caught it while traveling in the Alps or some bullshit, you know, right. very, very rich guy with this whole network. And it's about, you know, the downfall of this uh, important scion of a major wealthy family. Okay. This one, it's from the perspective of the small town sheriff investigating the case. So you don't know who the werewolf is. Well, it's a TV movie. You know who the werewolf is the first scene you see him, although you're not necessarily <laughs> supposed to. The werewolf is the most famous one in this TV movie. The the werewolf is the one who's surrounded by people talking French and calling him Lugaru. I mean, <laughs> they, they don't really pick it up that hard. But it's 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 perfectly fine. Like it's very moody. It's it's got you know some style for being an early seventies TV movie. The werewolf effects are pretty decent. Oh, cool. uh, and you got David Jansen. He was the fugitive in the original Fugitive TV series oh. as the sheriff. Oh, fun. Okay. Cool. Uh, next up, we've got Maximum Overdrive. Uh, the Stephen King one where what if cars were bad? Based on his short story, Trucks. Have you ever read any of like his short stories? This is, was like big for me as a kid. No, I never did. I think it's in Night Shift his short story collection, which is one of the first I read cover to cover when I was really young. So I saw this very, very young, <laughs> too young. I guess probably I would have been eight or nine. And this is an extremely horrifying movie for that age group. <laughs> so have you seen Maximum Overdrive before? Uh, I have. I've seen it a couple of times, but the only thing I remember is the Green Goblin truck. Okay, that's great. And it's driven by uh, uh, Mayor Royce from – no, not Mayor Royce. Uh, the the police commissioner from The Wire. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah. Burrell? Burrell. There's uh, also the chicken man from Breaking Bad in this. Oh, Amazing uh, cast. Giancarlo um, – oh, Giancarlo shit. Esposito. Yeah. Yeah. He, he plays a guy who gets killed by a bunch of arcade machines. <laughs> oh, right, because it's not just cars. It's every electrical device. Because <laughs> that, that's sort of the fun of it is there's no real explanation for the movie. They suggest that it's a comet. But then, like, at the end, there's a postscript where a Russian space platform blew up a UFO over Moscow around the time that it ended. So it's like. Just various things that could have happened. It may have been alien invasion, but using machines. But it doesn't matter because it's we're not interested in explaining things. Just like Dead yeah. Zone, we're interested in how things happen, but not why. Yeah, yeah, like in Alfred Hitchcock's The Birds. Why did the birds attack? Who cares? Mm, yeah. So, like, I saw this when I was eight or nine, and I remember renting it on VHS because I had read the short story and really loved it. And this was the one directed by Stephen King. So it's like, holy shit, Stephen King wrote and directed. This is the only one. Oh, wow. 
so the the opening sequence was definitely the most horrifying thing I had ever seen when I was watching it because it's a drawbridge malfunction or the drawbridge decides to uh, malfunction on its own. Right. Right. And like I was like I I was really prepped for this movie and that like I read the short story and really loved it. Uh, I had the soundtrack on cassette. It's ACDC. Oh, yeah. And and all ACDC soundtrack. They wrote the song Who Made Who uh, for it. It was the oh. title of the soundtrack. Oh, OK, cool. I didn't know that that was original. Yeah. Written for this movie because that's it's what the movie's about. Who made who? Who made you? Yeah. Yeah. So I like I, w- I was ready for it. And then this opening drawbridge sequence with the the drawbridge malfunctioning going up, uh, ACDC themselves are in it and get killed in the opening <laughs> scene. It's just pure chaos. People are getting crushed. People are falling off the bridge. All cars are like tumbling into each other. And that was extremely horrifying as like an eight year old. Right. Yeah, I bet. <laughs> and then. You go go forward a few scenes and there's the scene that it seems initially funny when there is a vending machine going crazy and shooting out cans. And like, you know, it hits the the little league coach in the nuts. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, I was laughing. And then he gets hit in the head again and it just wedges in his head and kills him. And then a steamroller busts through like a, the, the score platform on the yeah. edge of the little league triangle and runs over a kid. Oh yeah. I remember that now. That's... And there's just this horrible crunch noise. I turned off the movie and did not finish watching it. I had nightmares for weeks. <laughs> oh my. So like, I didn't even get to Yardley Smith, you know, Lisa Simpson, who's oh, one yeah. of the pe- main characters in this movie. Right. Which would have just like really further uh, driven me nuts because she's very clearly the Lisa Simpson voice, just slightly Southern. <laughs> and she's just cursing a blue streak the whole movie. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I I love this movie now. But there are like the, the steamroller scene and the drawbridge scene kind of just always will have that special frisson for me. Because it's like, oh, this totally blew my mind when I was too young to see it. Uh, next up we've got the amityville curse so amityville yeah you have you seen any of the movies i saw one oh yeah you've seen with the, the 1992 one <laughs> and i saw another one with the warrens but they're it's not an amityville they're they're conjuring. a different house yeah, yeah that's conjuring. it uh this one so do you, you you've listened to the last podcast episodes on it for sure right oh yeah yeah how it's how it's a haunted house story, but there was also an actual horrible killing that happened there. Yeah. And there's like a whole haunting thing. So it's public domain ultimately because it's technically real, you know, it's, it's, it's a hoax, but it's such a big popular modern folk tale that anyone can make a movie or write a book about it. Okay. So that's why there's so many. Yeah. There's like a hundred of them. I'm probably not even exaggerating. And this one is not part of the original movie franchise. <laughs> so, so you may remember the name Hans Holzer. Familiar with this guy? I, I might be when you tell me a little bit more. So he was the paranormal 
investigator who they called for the case, who like was actually investigating, quote unquote, at the time. Okay. But he's not the guy who wrote the Amityville horror book, the really famous one, even though he was himself a novelist. Uh, Okay. So someone foxed him out. Uh, This guy, Jay Anson, wrote the Amityville horror and made buku bucks on selling the rights to Hollywood and shit. So he wrote the sequels. Holzer ended up writing the Amityville sequels. Okay. Even though, like, you know, they're the totally fictional, bizarre amplifications that uh, had nothing to do with the case, even though he was the guy who was there for the case. (laughs) (laughs) The thing is, even before he started writing the sequels, he was already writing fan fiction novels. (laughs) Because this is based on a novel that he wrote in the 70s before he started writing the other ones. (laughs) Okay. So this one, it's it's fanfic about Amityville. Uh, these people buy a house in Amityville. Just a whole bunch of dudes. You know, it's it's a great deal. It's the same story. It's just all of them are Canadian TV actors because it was made for very cheap in Canada for direct to video <laughs> in 1990. <laughs> oh, and yeah, it's just this whole bizarre thing where there's a priest that was killed in the basement of the place and it's technically a church but <laughs> the the ghost of the priest is still there and there's this teenager who murdered him because i think he was being molested and the the ghost of the teenager is there trying to warn them but not giving very clear information it's weird <laughs> very strange Man, I, you'd think that you'd think that people who are trying to warn people about the horror would would be a little bit more clear because you know otherwise if you don't warn them properly they're going to die so you'd think you'd put more effort into communicating it adequately yeah but they don't and uh yeah also these people seem stupid uh it's got a similar energy to the peanut butter solution (laughs) oh the, the the performances are all really weird Right. Uh, I I think one of them is actually in the peanut butter solution. I feel like <laughs> the ghost lady, like the the lady who scares him bald. I think she's in this too. I know I saw her in something in the past week. <laughs> and this seems like the most likely one. Uh, next up is Indecent Desires, which is the next Doris Wishman picture. Ah, so not starring Tom Cruise. Most certainly not. This one I talked about briefly last week. This super nerdy dude finds a doll in the trash. And it turns out it's a voodoo doll. Right. He's like out walking around and he sees this woman who, for some reason, he decides looks like the doll, even though I don't know why. Because like it's, it's a basic baby doll that looks like a mass-produced toy. It doesn't right. look like a person. But he sees this girl and, you know, we see the doll superimposed over her. So obviously it is actually the voodoo doll for her. And he takes it home and he feels it up and she gets, you know, kind of horned up. And then later he gets really angry at it and he whips it with his belt and he burns it and stuff. It's weird. Very strange. (laughs) It's kind of a dick thing to do. Yeah. I mean, nerd rage. Right. Well, yeah. Nerd rage is uh, a perennial. Yeah. Next up, we've got Alien Resurrection. Speaking of nerd rage. Oh, boy. When this movie came out, <laughs> I fucking loved it. The only thing I remember about it is 
Winona Ryder being hot. Yeah, it's kind of the best part of it is the Winona Ryder Sigourney Weaver stuff. It's a weird movie. The biggest problem is it's Joss Whedon. It's a Joss Whedon script and it's real Joss Whedon-y. Oh no. Yeah, that'll that'll do it. So like the very first image we have of Sigourney Weaver, she's in a glass tube naked. Right. And there's a bunch of scientists standing around her taking notes. And it's like, I am starting this movie with Sigourney Weaver naked in a tube with nerds staring at her. This is really on the nose to start with. (laughs) Doesn't she end up being like a clone in this? She is cloned from the end of three where she's pregnant with the alien queen so that they can clone the alien queen in her womb and develop it, which makes no sense. (laughs) You know, evil company gotta, gotta control the alien. Well, this is the thing. They're not a corporation. They're, they, they make a distinction that they're actually a medical crew rather than a corporation, but it's, it's all bullshit. (laughs) Uh, Uh, It's not the same company. No, it's not Wayland Yutani. Oh, they don't even exist anymore. I think. What? Oh, right. This is like super far in the future. Way in the future, yeah, because she's been dead for 300 years or something. Yeah, that's right. I forgot about that whole bit. Yeah. Uh, So Winona Ryder is an android. That's revealed at the very end. It's just, it's really obvious for a while because she's a self-loathing LGBT android. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like, when she gets into Sigourney Weaver's jail cell, she, like, throws at her and like oh, you're just a construct you're not real and especially knowing the ending coming to it it's like this is pretty on the nose <laughs> she's like obviously throwing this at her like oh obviously not me i i'm not a construct it's, it doesn't apply to me I mean, it clearly applies to me as all yeah yeah <laughs> i'm just, not the, mad you're mad yeah and the energy between them is very sexual like unabashedly uh the that i i sent you a clip of the that sequence where she confronts her in the jail cell and sigourney weaver just like stands up and is like caressing her face and she is just overwhelmed (laughs) (laughs) uh it's weird like it's jean-pierre junet who directed uh delicatessen and later Amelie. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> so it, Amelie. Oh, Amelie's great. Good movie. Or at least, I don't know, I haven't seen it in 20 years. I really liked it 20 years ago. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's it's got a lot of Junet energy in a weird sort of way. It has some of his regular guys. So it's got this weird French art film energy in between being a very 90s action film with a bunch of space marines, including Ron Perlman. Oh my god. <laughs> and Brad Dourif. Oh. You know, Chucky cool. himself. Yeah. yeah. Weird movie. Uh the script sucks, but uh <laughs> you know, interesting. Oh, right on. Next up we've got Guns and Guts. Uh this one is a Mexican western. Uh, from the same double bill as uh the one with Hot Snake. Oh cool. It's the the other one on that disc. So weird one. <laughs> <laughs> there's these two guys who want to get revenge on some dude and they're it's kind of like fist or fistful for a few dollars more where 
one of them realizes the other one is after the same guy and he just approaches him and is like, I think we should work together. It's just neither of these guys are impressive gunfighters. They just want revenge. Right, right. So they are, you know, they're traveling to get this guy and they happen to run into this dude who is a weird old West gunfighter guy, but he's like a super pimp. He's a pimp and he's got like his own brothel where like his girls are are the center of his business and he kind of keeps them to himself most of the time. Okay. (laughs) Ultimately he decides it would be really fun to go with them and help out in their revenge thing because he's just this weird, carefree, bizarre gunfighter dude who like he talks about how he's always loved prostitutes and it's his favorite thing. And even when he was a kid, (laughs) sure. And yeah, he he has this strange monologue where he's talking. And he's like, "Oh well, my mother couldn't object. Cause she was one of them." In what sense, dude? Yeah. Uh, hmm. <laughs> so ultimately, you know, he joins, and it turns out that the guy that they're going after has become a sheriff. So it's the quick and the dead thing. You know, he has this whole small town of reinforcements behind him. Right. Right. And you know, they all team up, and uh, it's a very Sam Peckinpah-esque conclusion where there's a chain gun and there's a whole bunch of people and there's uh, squibs and blood flying everywhere in slow motion for about 15 minutes. <laughs> that sounds fun. That's pretty good. It's no Peckinpah, but you can definitely <laughs> see the influence. Cool, cool. Next up, we've got Fire in the Sky. This is another pretty foundational one for me. Oh. Uh, another one that I saw really young, probably around... I guess probably age 11, because I definitely remember seeing it on its first, t- its premiere TV broadcast on Fox, because so heavily advertised at the time. I I remember hearing about this, but I don't know if I've seen it. So it's based on the Travis Walton UFO abduction, which you may be familiar with. I know there's a last podcast on the left episode on it. Um, Honestly, all the UFO abductions all kind of blur together. So this is one of the more recent ones. It took place in 1975 uh, with these loggers in Arizona. Okay. And they're like out in the deep woods and they get encountered by a UFO. And one of the dudes runs out to uh, look at it and they're all like, fucking get back in the truck, you idiot. And then he gets knocked out and taken by the aliens. Of course. And then, you know, they come to town. Everyone thinks they murdered him. They it's it's weird, like half of the movie in the middle is sort of this fake murder mystery where they're thinking, like, did these guys do it? And it's like, I know this is an alien invasion movie. Can we just or alien abduction <laughs> movie? Can we just get to the point where we're talking about that instead of pretending this is a murder mystery? When are they going to get to the alien factory? I mean, for real, it was so big and all the advertising was the ship and the aliens. Uh, And when you actually get to it, it's fucking creepy. It's terrifying. I think it was a major influence on The Matrix, actually, because the interior of the spaceship and how Walton is kept in there is just like the pods in The Matrix. Exactly like it. Cool. Uh, weirdly, stars Robert Patrick. Oh, um, uh, Agent. Oh gosh, Agent Doggett from the X Files. Agent Doggett from the X Files, although he wasn't there yet. This was just after T two, where uh, that's the other thing. He was the T one thousand, and hmm. in this, he's just this greasy backwoods logger with a beard and long hair, <laughs> and it's like oh, this does not look like Robert Patrick to me. <laughs> I could not reconcile. Oh man, I almost 
almost want to watch it just to see Robert Patrick as a lumberjack. It's weird. Uh, next up, we've got Zero Grad. This is a almost post-Soviet movie. This is right at the end of the Soviet Union, just before it crumpled. Right. And it's thinking about that. It's like, huh, uh, Soviet oppressions over time. Let's let's ruminate on those. Mm. <laughs> there's, so there's a lot to think about. There's a lot. So this dude is traveling uh, because uh, his company needs him to look into the design of these air conditioners. So he's gone to the small town where they produce them to be like, we need this thing to be changed for cost cutting measures. But no one's willing to help him. And everyone's really weird in this small town. Okay. And he goes through this weird museum that's just talking about Soviet heroes through time and uh, ones related to this small town. And it's all just like uh, the first people who discovered rock and roll in the small town. And then next to the statue of them is a framed portrait in lights of the guy who denounced them <laughs> and <laughs> sent them to the gulag. That's hilarious. That sort of thing. Yeah. <laughs> And, and he he stops for lunch on his way out, and the chef closes down the whole restaurant. And after him ordering lunch, they they keep pressuring. He's like, "You should order some cakes. We're very well known for our cakes." And he's like, "I don't I don't think so. I just really want to get out of here. This whole debacle has been weird." And the waiter comes out with a cake that has an uncanny resemblance to him. It's his head, like his oh own my. head. The, the the guy who's traveling it's like yeah, this yeah. is weird i don't want this i don't want it and it's like <laughs> please you you have to just try it. it it's what we're known for we're, we're really great at this like look at the chef the chef is so excited he's taken a shine to you and he he it, it will just he'll kill himself if you don't try it and it's like this this is weirding me out i can't do it dude so he he just throws the money and he starts to leave and this chef fucking kills himself oh my god <laughs> shoots himself right there or maybe someone kills him. That's one of the twists later on that potentially was it really a killing? Oh. Uh, and he is taken to uh, the police and they're like, well, I mean, you, why didn't you just try the cake, man? What's your problem? <laughs> and ultimately, the just solution is they're like, OK, the thing is, this guy really believed you were his long lost son. And for appearances, we just want you to, if anyone asks you about it, just agree, just yes and them that like, yeah, I am the chef's son. <laughs> wow. <laughs> All right. And so he has to go to the funeral and then he has to lead the funeral because they say he's the son and he has to do a whole eulogy. And it's just him now dealing with this situation where technically he's supposed to be legally this guy's son all of a sudden. <laughs> weird movie <laughs> it's great all right that sounds interesting it sounds Next. like that that mm. meme uh from like a couple of years ago where everything was cake yeah it is totally that guys like uh, i'm cake i don't <laughs> like this <laughs> next up we've got a view to a kill the last of the roger moore bonds oh nice have you seen this one mm, oh is this the christopher walken one Indeed it is. Christopher Walken and Grace Jones as the villains. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if I've seen the whole thing, but I saw the beginning where like he's got them all like on a blimp discussing his plans. And one guy's like, well, I'm not OK with this. OK, well, we'll just let you get off the blimp. And he opens up a trap door underneath them. That's not the beginning. That's the end. So you have oh. seen the whole thing. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's like the the last quarter of the movie. Oh, well. 
I guess I've seen it then. Most likely. Uh, it's it's interesting. I Like, Walken and Grace Jones are both fucking amazing. Mm-hmm. Incredible villains. Uh, Roger Moore is so old. <laughs> he, he looks so incredibly old in every scene he's in. It, it's like, man, just put on a sweater and relax, my dude. You don't look right here. <laughs> you know, I'm looking at it. I see it's uh, 1985. I thought Dalton had taken over by then. He does the next one. Next two. Okay. Decent plot. This one's much more coherent than the other more ones where it's just like, you know, supervillain wants to live under the sea or wants to live in space, whatever. Or James Bond versus the black people. Right. That's that one's not. I, I mean, I kind of love that one. That's probably my second favorite, but it's problematic. It's uh, fun. Yeah, it's <laughs> problematic. It's fun, but though. This one is about Silicon Valley. Uh, he He's going to attack Silicon Valley, I guess. Now that I'm thinking about it, I can't remember exactly how it fit together again. But <laughs> I, I know it's Silicon Valley and they have the big climax at Golden Gate Bridge because they're oh, on top okay. of the Golden Gate Bridge at the end. Right, right. Yeah, it's a good time. Uh, great theme song, Duran Duran. Cool. Meeting you at a view to a kill. <laughs> great. Nice. Uh, next up, we've got Star Trek The Motion Picture, the original. The motionless picture, more uh, like, am I right? Har, har, har. Kind of right. It's 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 slow moving. It's very slow moving. And I fucking love it. It's my favorite one. <laughs> now, I know I haven't seen this whole one, but I do know the ending. Uh, right. I just caught the ending on TV, so I know. Viger. Yeah, I know what Viger yeah. is. It, the, the great thing about this one is they clearly were like, well, we can do 2001. We're Star Trek. We're not going to do this Star Wars action shit. We're going to do 2001, obviously. Right. And they do. And it fucking rules. It's, it is the 2001 plot. There's this weird big cloud in space. They're like, that's fucked up. And okay. at the beginning, it disintegrates a couple Klingon ships. I'm like, oh, that's, that's worrisome. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, so Kirk, who's retired... But they're they're building a new enterprise and it's got a new crew and there's a new captain. And he's like, no, no, fuck that guy. I'm taking the ship. And he comes aboard and fires the guy and takes over the ship and staffs it with all his people. <laughs> of course, of course. But it's like the the cool thing about it is like halfway through the movie, it's basically they get to the Stargate. You know, like the the sequence where you get high in 2001, right? Right, right, okay, yes. Halfway so, through so the they movie. Do that? Yeah, halfway through the movie they get to the cloud and then the rest of the movie is them slowly making their way to the middle of the cloud through psychedelic space. Half of the movie is the Stargate sequence. You know, that could be fun. It rules because like the, the the big complaint about this is it's all view screen acting. They don't right. really do anything physically. They're just all in the dark ship looking at monitors being like, huh, look at that fucking thing. That's crazy. <laughs> Until Spock goes out in a spacesuit for a certain part, of course. But right. yeah, it, it rules. Uh, there's this whole thing where the probe for the cloud inhabits this person who is on the ship who we've heard alluded to is a delphin which is a breed of aliens in the star trek universe that are extremely horny oh 
And that's <laughs> kind of key to the conclusion of the movie in a weird sort of way. All right. Yeah. Uh, I, I love this. That bit. You you kind of need to know about it going in, but it's it's there. Okay. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I, I love it. It's very special to me. Uh, I, I get it that some people find it boring. I totally understand. <laughs> right. Uh, next up, we've got Blood Delirium, which is... Uh, you've probably never seen Bucket of Blood, have you, Dick Miller? Uh, I don't Dorman? think so. Also, Color Me Blood Red is the uh, Herschel Gordon Lewis version of it. Basically, the idea that a painter who is not mentally well is is in a situation where there's a corpse in his painting room and realizes ah oh, human blood fresh that's the perfect color i've been looking for you know you could just go down to the paint store and be like hey can you mix me up a pint of uh, human blood colored stuff they probably get their request so often they have it on file well, maybe now. I don't know if you could have done that in the 60s when they started doing these oh, movies. This no. one's 88, so maybe by then, but this one's weird. <laughs> <laughs> the, this one, you have someone having sex with the corpse in the first 15 minutes, and that happens a bunch of times in the movie. Uh, <laughs> it's a lot of necrophilia, more than you expect. Uh <laughs> Blood delirium. More necrophilia than you'd expect. Yeah. Uh, there, there's a part where the this girl comes up a hill and then there's just a bunch of glowing white orbs that talk to her and bring up this supernatural mist. And I don't know. It, it gets very strange at times. Lots of nudity. You know, it's, it's an 80s Italian horror thing. So there's Definitely a lot of nudity taking place all the time. Uh, the the painter has just all sorts of really weird, evil, psychedelic, satanic paintings. So like when she first comes to his workshop, because uh, she's, I forgot to mention that the painter, his wife died. Oh, okay. Like the year before, and she was his muse. So now that she's dead, he's kind of gone insane from uh, not having her around. That sounds like... It could be a viable backstory for Wingshauser's character in L.A. Bounty. Yeah, uh, there is a part where they dig up her corpse to uh, try just, you know, having the body around and see how that works for him in terms of inspiration. <laughs> it doesn't. <God. laughs> but then, he, you know, he finally has a show and this lady shows up who looks exactly like her. So he kidnaps her and then it just has her in the castle for a long time while all this weird shit's going on. But the first time she comes into, yes, she doesn't, he doesn't even really kidnap her. He just kind of keeps her there when she shows up. There's the orb stuff. Uh, <laughs> but she, she comes into his workshop and is like, oh, what's this painting? He's like, oh, that's Satan giving birth to universe. <laughs> it's like a painting of someone on all fours who's painted red. Just like stuff coming out of the butt. It's pretty funny. <laughs> Uh, next, we've got Night of the Hunted. This is a Jean Rolin film. We've talked about him a fair amount of times. This is a Jean Rolin that's very Cronenberg-y. Oh, interesting. Like very early Cronenberg, especially Shivers. Oh, that was, that was a fun one. Oh, I love that movie. This is dark, very grim, very eerie. 
so it's like early Cronenberg shivers as well as his early stuff like stereo and crimes of the future, which are his student films that are sort of more just dwelling in weird sixties Canadian architecture, like futuristic architecture and just kind of drinking in the atmosphere of the spaces. So this is a really weird one. Uh, there's this tower called the black tower in like a, a collection of skyscrapers in Paris. Okay. Kind of like uh, our location in Sound and Fury, but uh, just one floor higher up is there. there is a medical clinic where there is all of these people who have a mysterious disease where they have amnesia. So not only have they forgotten everything about their lives, they can't form new memories. Oh, that sucks. And it starts with two of them trying to escape and one of them gets away, but she forgets that she was with someone else. So the other person gets left behind. Right, right. (laughs) And she goes home with this guy who just happened to be passing by on the road. And he finds very quickly that, yeah, she doesn't remember anything. She already has forgotten him saving her. Okay. And she ends up back in the hospital. Ultimately, they're very quick at finding her and, you know, they, they bring her out of the apartment and it's like, well, you're free to go back to the apartment. Can you find your way back there? And she looks around and is like, you don't even remember which building it is, do you? Like, no. <laughs> so they take her back. Uh, and then it's just about living in this weird liminal space. You know, it's an upper floor of this very futuristic black office building. And all of the people there have total amnesia so everyone is living in this weird life that is similar to death and similar to dreams yeah. uh, they're prone to violent anxiety attacks which cause some of them to go on murder sprees at times just eerie very very interesting cool kind of kind of reminds me of the premise of memento a little bit yeah it's it's like that except you know they don't really have anything to hold on to right well, he, and does, la- he just has to remind himself every single time he... Well, he's got all those up. tattoos. Yeah. <laughs> he's He's got stuff written down. Oh, that's right. And last up is Born to Fight. Uh, this is the last of the three Bruno Mattai, Claudio Fragasso, exploitation movies that recently came up from Severin. Oh, okay. I, I talked about the previous two in, in recent weeks. There was, uh, oh God, Cop Game, which was pretty fun. And kind of a double target. Right, right. <laughs> so there's this guy who is a Vietnam vet, but he's like really cool, you know? <laughs> he looks like Crocodile Dundee if that's the guy from the poster art. Yes. I, it's like mostly Nam Split or Rambo ripoff. It's very First Blood Part 2. Oh, I haven't seen that one. Oh, uh,. It's not a great movie. <laughs> I think I've only ever seen the first Rambo, like First Blood, that is. That's easily the best one. Oh, it is a good movie. Yeah, the sequels are stupid. <laughs> Can we quite <laughs> well, yeah, honestly, because it turns him into an action hero, and that's not the point of First Blood. Yeah, this one is a ripoff of Part Two. <laughs> right. <laughs> Very distinctly, where, you know, uh, Secret POWs still in Vietnam in the 80s. And he, 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 the, our, our guy's introduced. He's kind of also an Indiana Jones knockoff. just kind of more the outfit. But he, he's introduced in this bar where someone 
throws a rattlesnake at him and he like grabs the rattlesnake and milks it so uh the the poison it sprays like it, it's poison goes into a glass of whiskey that he has and then he drinks it and like yeah really <laughs> fucking cool that's how he's introduced oh god okay uh, and there's like this lady reporter you know an april o'neill type who wants to hire him uh, she's played by a bond girl very obscure bond girl who's not super well known uh can you guess which bond movie she was in uh i'm gonna guess it's not a view to a kill see it is a view to a kill oh. and while i was watching born to fight like two days after having watched a view to a kill i was like huh which bond girl was she so not the most memorable. <laughs> so not Grace Jones. No, I do not remember her name. She is like she's the Bond girl, whereas uh, Grace Jones is a villain. She's the oh, henchman. Oh right, right. Because yeah. well, sometimes the villain is also the Bond girl. Or... Usually both. You know, yeah. they're, they're, she's like Xenia on a top, right? Right. Yeah. But yeah, she she's technically not a reporter, or maybe she is, but it's this whole thing where she wants him to rescue her dad, who's a Vietnam. POW, but there's this whole plot behind it where they're trying to lure him there to get revenge because he was highly decorated. I don't know. Oh my god. <laughs> it doesn't Vietnam, matter. <laughs> a Vietnam plot or a pole plot. Uh, I'm going to hell. Yeah, it's also not Vietnam. That's Cambodia. Oh fuck. Uh so the it's it's weird. It's just this whole revenge thing with everybody looking for revenge and everybody trying to get something. And it, it doesn't matter. It's just all about a whole bunch of huts exploding and uh, our guy just firing a machine gun and making faces. Yeah, it's, that's what you're here for. And it's pretty good. <laughs> cool. cool. So those are our 13 picks. What do you figure for our next week? Um, You know, I I'm thinking... You know, I got to finally watch the whole Star Trek movie. It's a good uh, I've one. I've seen the end like 20 years ago, so I've always known like how it ends and what V'ger is, but I've never known how we get there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, it's it's great. Uh, I think you will dig it, especially having now seen 2001. It's it's better seeing it after 2001, perhaps. Although, I think I saw it first as a kid. Most science fiction is better if you see it after 2001. Yeah, I don't know. It feels like 2001 kind of eats their lunch most of the time. You're like, oh, well, um, I mean, it's no 2001. Okay. This definitely is doing the 2001 thing. And you're like, you're doing 2001, aren't you, Star Trek? <laughs> but it's That's great. Fair. That's I a fair point. Know. I haven't seen much science fiction after seeing 2001. So, yeah, yeah you're you're probably right. Uh, but it's great. I, I think it will be interesting to look at it through that lens. And yeah, have the uh, horniness thing in mind, because always keep in mind that Gene Roddenberry was a very horny man, famously horny. Oh, yeah. All right. Good to know. So moving over to the stacks, we have uh, five editions. OK. Uh, first up, we've got Yakuza Wolf. Oh my god, is he a Yakuza who turns into a werewolf? Sadly, no, although I do have a movie with Sonny Chiba called Wolf Guy, where he's a werewolf. <laughs> oh, cool. But this one, he is getting revenge against the Yakuza. They've they've killed his father, they've abducted his sister, and it is just a full movie of him getting his bloody revenge, and that's the whole thing. <laughs> okay. 
Uh, next up, we've got A Taste of Flesh, which is the next Doris Wishman picture. Right on. This one is about a lesbian couple in their apartment, and then a couple dudes show up, I think, who are political assassins, and they want to use their apartment as a vantage point to assassinate someone. Okay. And, you know, sexual shenanigans, obviously, because well, Doris Wishman. Uh, next up, we've got Red Spirit Lake, which is a uh, shot on video picture. Cool. A weird experimental art type thing where uh, there's this lady who goes back to some childhood home, but there's like greedy land developers trying to get a hold of this lakeside property. Okay. And then just total SOV insanity <laughs> takes place. Like I've heard that this one is really bonkers. There's Satanists, lots of nudity, lots of crazy gore. Uh, there is a part where someone gets fisted to death. <laughs> I, I think it's revenge for him having committed a rape and murder earlier in the movie. And then the ghost comes back and fists him to death, that kind of thing. Right. Okay. Uh, next, we've got The Werewolf versus the Vampire Woman. Very What's early. this about? Uh, this is an early Paul Nashi, who I don't think you've seen anything of yet. Okay. Uh, he He's sort of like the Lon Chaney of Spain, where he's just, he he played every monster, and he was always doing all of these monster pictures. Okay, cool. But his main character was Valdemar Daninsky, a uh, werewolf count. And this is his first, or I don't know if it's the first, but it's the first main character movie for Valdemar Daninsky. So obviously Daninsky has this big crumbling castle, but he's staying there and the castle belonged to a famous vampire in the past. And these, these people come to stay at the castle and uh, obviously ultimately the, the vampire is brought back to life. This vampire woman and you know it also turns out that he's a werewolf so they they these people have to deal with both a werewolf and a vampire which is just a whole big deal oh yeah uh, it's, it's too much to deal with for one movie unless or is it or is it well and more importantly nudity i mean you got to have tons and tons of nudity uh oh sure the the main cut the original theatrical primary cut for this movie is known as the nude cut. Uh, the the theatric like the the later censored home video versions are like the clothed cut. <laughs> mm, I see, I see. So that sort of thing. And last edition is the Rape of the Vampire, which is uh, Jean Roland's first film. Oh. And from what I understand, it's like two films kind of crammed together as as these things kind of happen in this biz. Okay. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> yeah, I didn't. I didn't realize how common that was until I until I started doing this show. Yeah. So the first half hour or so, as I understand it, is there's these four sisters, and they have this huge, crumbling, gigantic estate, and there's the psychiatrist who's trying to convince them that they're not all two hundred year old vampires. Okay. And then the second part. The vampire queen comes back and there's car chases and shit. <laughs> sure. <laughs> I hear it just gets very zany. Right. Uh, yeah. Weird one. Cool. Uh, so those are all the additions. What do you figure for our main picture next week? Well, I was just thinking we used to watch, we used to watch Kung Fu movies like every week, but we haven't seen any in 
a few months, I think it's been. Mm, probably. I don't yeah. think we've watched one since prior to Halloween, for sure. I don't think we have. So I'm looking at The Boxer from Shantung. Which I, I think, think it, is the next one in the Shaw Scope Volume 1, correct? Uh, I, I think so. do not know, but... Uh, <laughs> I'm fairly certain it is, yeah. Okay, well, it is a kung fu movie anyway. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. I'm thinking, uh, let's get back into kung fu. I guess we haven't talked about many kung fu movies on the show. We just watch them. Yeah, the the only one we've really covered is Five Fingers of Death, I believe. I think that was the only one, yeah. That movie yeah. was so cool. That's pretty good. Uh, one of the best, but uh, Human Lanterns is probably higher up for me. That one's, Human that Lanterns one's good. So rad. Yeah. And of course, uh, The Crippled Avengers is unreal. Oh, oh yeah, that, that's iconic. So that's a, box, yeah. Boxer from Shang, Shantung, I think, is very closely related to ones we've seen before. Maybe, again, the exact same plot as uh, <laughs> the, the Chinese Boxer slash Five Fingers of Death. But, you know, we've seen it a few times and we'll, we'll see it more. Oh, sure. I mean, it, it, it's like the Kung Fu movie plot. Yeah, basically. So then next week we'll be covering The Boxer from Shantung as well as Star Trek The Motion Picture. Uh, should be a good time. Should be some fun stuff. Yeah, um, yeah, I'm looking forward to it. I've been meaning to watch Star Trek 1 for the longest time. It's so good. Uh, I think you'll dig it uh, right the way on. I do. Uh, oh, but yeah, cool. it's it's strange. <laughs> it's, it's, <laughs> it's a special, special entry. Right on. Uh, all right, so any last thoughts before we close for this week? Fuck. <laughs> all right, well, uh, thanks everyone so much for listening, uh, and who made who?